Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we are back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more light, more love. I can't believe it, but he's back. When I interviewed this person the first time, in a way, it was a dream come true. It was an incredible interview, and I can't believe he's back. Jim Shooter is here on the podcast, returning after a little over a year. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing. I'm very happy about this. Jim Shooter is here, and we're going to talk to him in just a second. But first, I need you to do something for me. Go to bluecobracbd.com. That is bluecobracbd.com. And there you will find Blue Cobra CBD oil, the highest quality CBD oil on the planet, period. It's absolutely incredible. I'll tell you why. Again, a man named Howard Hitt created his own proprietary extraction method to extract CBD from hemp flower. He then uses that to create his oil. This method is called the HIT extraction method. And Howard HIT, a.k.a. Big H, uses no chemicals, no solvents, no gases. It's 100% natural. The product is 100% organic. The hemp flower that he uses is 100% organ-grown, organic hemp flower. It's absolutely amazing. I absolutely love it. There are three styles currently, the maximum strength, King Cobra, regular strength, little King Cobra, and the wild thing, CBD for pets. Absolutely astounding product for pets. It's selling very well for him because people want their pets to have organic, high-quality products. Howard says a lot of things about Blue Cobra CBD. He feels like it cured his cancer. It affected it in a way that it's now gone. So he says, which I'm reporting on, I can't make those claims, but Howard does. You can talk to him at the contact section at bluecobracbd.com. Get a hold of him. Talk to him. Let him tell you his story personally. Howard's product has a money-back guarantee. If for some reason you do not like the product, can send it back. We have a discount code which gives you free shipping on any order. And that code is big H, B I G H, big H. And so part of that money back guarantee is if you didn't use that code, if you're outside of the continental 48 United States and you did have to pay shipping, you can keep the product, keep the shipping money if you had to pay it. You get all your money back. And that discount code, of course, is there to use. This is an incredible product. I highly recommend it. I've been taking it regularly. It helps me be my best self. I've said many, many positive things about Blue Cobra CBD oil. But at the end of the day, 
There's only one place you can get it. There's no other product like it. It's proprietary. It's organic. It's the highest quality CBD oil that you can find out there. You can only find it again in one spot. Blue Cobra cbd.com the website howard's website blue cobra cbd.com check it out and when you're done with that follow me on instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth that is the address you can follow us there spotify apple podcasts google podcasts wherever you go to get your podcasts click that button that connects us So you know when these incredible guests come on. If Jim Shooter comes back on again, you'll know. You'll get that message. And of course, the most important thing is to tell a friend, tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts. You know them well. You're friends with them. Tell that person to come here. Midnightonearth.com. Okay, well, we're going to talk to Jim. This is going to be incredible, incredible episode, but I got to read his bio. So here we go. Jim Shooter is an American writer, editor, and publisher for various comic books. He started professionally in the medium at the age of 13 at what is now DC Comics. Also, he is notable in the Marvel Comics world for his legendary, legendary 1978 to 1987 run as Marvel Comics editor-in-chief during which many classic and groundbreaking comics were created. In the comic-creating world in general, he's very well known for his work as creator and editor-in-chief of Valiant Comics. He was also both the creator and editor-in-chief of Defiant Comics and Broadway Comics. Currently... Jim is the editor-in-chief of Illustrated Media, a custom comic book company, and we're so excited that he's here. Jim, hello. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you doing, Jake? I'm doing incredible. I'm so honored that you're here. Last time was incredible. Well, I'm, happy to be here. Well, I'm just so honored that you're here. You're such an, a massive contributor to the to the human experience, the things that you've created have brought so much joy and happiness and really a lot of things for so many people. And it's just such an incredible contribution that you've done over time. And you're still here contributing, which is amazing. What an honor. But Jim, let's talk about what's been going on since the last time we talked. People listening, if you want to hear Jim's life story, how he got from 13 to now and all the various points in between, check out the previous episode that we recorded. That has all of that information. It's an incredible four and a half hour long episode. It's still the longest episode ever on the Midnight on Earth podcast. Go check that out. But right now we're here to catch up with Jim Shooter. Jim, what have you been up to lately? Uh, well, I, I, I do a lot of conventions. Um, I gotta keep getting invitations to conventions and, you know, they haven't forgotten me yet, but <laughs> anyway, yeah, anyway, so I, I've been doing that. Other than that, I mostly have been doing some, some Hollywood stuff that I, I really can't talk about yet, but, uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, non-disclosures and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. 
but uh, at any rate, I've been they, they, they've been k- keeping me very busy, and and I, uh, you know, I got, <laughs> the conventions are almost a break. So that's you know, go to a convention. Those are fun. Get to talk to people and stuff. And, so the conventions, computer for a while. The conventions are your vacation, and then you're just nonstop yeah. writing. It sounds like that's that's about it for the, for quite a while now. <laughs> and uh, it's it's you know I'm very happy doing it, and you know it's it's been uh, really good and great fun, and uh, my, my I think it will continue for a while. Um, so, uh, so anyway, uh, that's, that's pretty much it. So last time we talked, you mentioned on the episode that you were working on a history of comic books, the comic craft book for image. Is that still something that's happening? Yeah, but it had, it had to be postponed. Eric, uh, Eric Stevenson wanted it for this spring, but I just couldn't do it. And so, uh, I, 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 you know, last time I talked to him, he was still very interested, and in, we're going to go ahead with it. But uh, I've had to put that aside to do all these other things. And uh, but you know, I, I'm looking forward to doing that. And also after that, Eric said that uh, um, after the how-to book, uh, he said if I have any properties that you know I'd like to have Image published, that uh, they'd be uh, happy to do it. So uh, I do have a lot of properties. Well, that's pretty amazing. You know, so we'll see what happens. That was one of the questions I was going to ask you because it seems like a person of your stature and also your talent um, could easily have a gig at Image with a book. So it seems like uh, I felt that that was coming. It's really good that that is a potential possibility because I know that very many comic book artists, new, young, and older would love to work with you on something like that. So, so that's very exciting news. Yeah, Eric Stevens is a great guy. He's very smart. He really knows his stuff. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, he would take off my shoulders all of the sort of running around and getting artists and things like that. So uh, yeah. I, I think he I think he has some, some people in mind. Which, but um, we'll, um, we'll see what happens down the road. But I, I, uh, I look forward to that opportunity it's going to be it's going to be fun because i haven't done any kind of mainstream stuff for comics in a while yes I mean, everything i do is comic book related somehow but but uh but it'll be fun to sort of get back in the saddle again yeah i uh can't wait to be honest uh, i think yeah. it was the dark horse gold key stuff that you worked on in 2010 11 was kind of your last big professional work that i can think of um, yeah, I've done a couple little indie things since then and some, some commercial stuff. But yeah, that was my last big stint in the comments. I think that ended in 2012, I guess. I don't know. Right. And there was your name being thrown around uh, working on an image book as kind of an overseer. But that never came to fruition. What was that about? Well, uh, some guys called me up and one guy I worked with before. And, uh, you know, they, they wanted me to consult and, and then sort of edit and, and, uh, it turned into more sort of, uh, advising and teaching. <laughs> but, but, uh, it, the thing is they were, they were not showing me what they did and, and 
so it's always, oh yeah, we'll send that next week, you know, and, uh, uh, and, and really, I think they just wanted my name on it. And uh, oh. when I finally got a look at the thing, I just said, you're not putting my name on this. And, uh, and you know, I, I just couldn't do it. It wasn't, it wasn't professional quality. I, I, I said, no, they had gotten Eric Stevenson, an image that had gotten his attention just because my name was on it. And, uh, and I, you know, Eric, Eric and I talked and I said, I'm, you know, I'm out of that. And so I, he, uh, he backed out of the, uh, he talks with them. They didn't have a deal, but he backed out of the, uh, talking to them. And, um, I don't know what they did after that, but, uh, uh, but anyway, it was, it was very, um, just, uh, I don't know, just, it just, it wasn't, uh, what I thought it was going to be. Okay. So it wasn't a good fit. Cause I did see your name out there for a second attached to that project. And as a Jim shooter fan, I did get excited, but then later I saw the same project with your name remo- removed and it seemed a little suspicious. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't writing. It was, it, it actually kept changing. <laughs> At one point I was supposed to write something and that never, I never heard from them. And then uh, other points, I you know, be asked questions or I review something that they they wanted. And, uh, worked a lot with the writer, um, uh, but it just it just wasn't happening. I I, uh, I was really disappointed when it finally showed me what you know what they <laughs> were doing. Well, it reminds me of uh, it reminds me of that military comic story that you had, where you know you went to go work with potentially the the Defense Department on a comic book, and then when you saw how un- unprofessional the product was. You didn't want your name attached to it. So this is kind of a similar situation. No, that's not it. The, 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 first of all, it was the State Department. Oh, sorry about that. And it was it was kind of Voice of America comics. Right. And we were full steam ahead, and they did nothing wrong. They were nothing but helpful. I was on the phone all the time to their to one of their Mideast experts and, uh, you know, getting educated. And uh, what happened was the Gulf War. The Gulf War interfered, right? And, yes, uh, I as remember. Soon as the Gulf War started, we couldn't even get them on the phone. Number one, and number two, um, the lady who ran that thing, her name was uh, Charlotte Beers, Beer or Beers, and um, uh, she was out of advertising and, and working there on this these kinds of projects. And uh, I think she left, and I think that they're they're uh, sort of. You know, using comics and other things as as a, a uh, like an outreach right. uh, was was that just just got lost but between the war and our leaving. I think we just got buried. So yeah, I do remember. So anyway, that. we didn't do it. It was fun while it lasted, and 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 I, I have I, some of the properties I have I created for that. But since that didn't happen, I, I own them. <laughs> so. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, you know, I mean, you, that's, they could show up one day. You never know. Well, some of the some of the properties could because uh, you know they they uh, basically uh, I told them I wasn't interested in doing any kind of preaching or propaganda, and uh, they agreed. You know, do entertainment, uh, but you know, I mean, just just by the fact that it was entertaining, if, if you created something that was, that was popular and entertaining, it would it would. Build bridges, and uh, that's what we wanted. It was children's stuff. It wasn't, you know, heavy duty uh, adult comics. It was uh, younger readers, not little kids, but but 
teenagers. You know, they're, they're calling the young, the young adult audience, right. the young teenagers, the Harry Potter audience. I see. Well, you know, lately yeah. your name has come up twice in the news since our last recording a little over a year ago. And I want to talk to you about those things. One of them, I'm, I'm just so amazed at you. Like your level of integrity is so high. Your character is so strong. And when I read this article, I just, I was dumbfounded because a lot of people wouldn't make the choice that you made. And this is in reference to Marvel comics reaching out to you recently about the rights to the venom character. It seems that they did not have any proof that they created the character and they were trying to, if I read the article correctly, they were trying to get you to sign a contract to give them the rights, but the contract was so fishy and sus that you refused, but then they called you back and you gave up the rights for $10,000, which I thought was so amazing because you, it was work for hire. Yeah, I'll tell you though that what really happened is, is uh, it wasn't just Venom. It was Secret Wars and everything that sprang from it, including Venom and Carnage. And basically, basically, for some reason, they couldn't find a single shred of paper that I'd signed that said they had any rights or title to Secret Wars, the black costume, all that came from the black costumes, and other new characters I created, the Beyonder. And, you know, a lot of it, you know, and, and, and the story itself. And uh, so, uh, I don't know, first some weasel from Marvel tried to con me into signing, <laughs> a, uh, signing a document because he was he was saying, oh, we want you to write a novelization. We'll send you the contract. But he sent me it was a, a, a work-for-hire document. It was you talk about building suspenders, things like an inch thick. And I'm like, and and, on, and the, the agreement to do the the little novelization thing was was one page. I said, wait a minute, <laughs> something's fishy here. And uh, and besides, uh, the offer he made me was pathetic. And uh, I, I I said no. And he kept coming back again and again, slightly higher offers. Like I'm like, no, no, uh, I don't know what's going on here, but no, no thanks. And finally, his boss, a guy I know, is uh, named David Bogart. Great, great guy, nice guy. Um, and has always, you know, dealt very fairly with me and very generously with me. And he called me up and he said he found out about what this guy was trying to do and, um, and, uh, said that he apologized and said, sorry, you know, the guy was Officer Rocket. And, uh, and then he said, he said, we do need you because we don't have any of these papers. We have no proof of, we own any of this stuff. And, um, so we'd, we'd like you to sign a, a work for hire and we'll pay you to do it. And I said, you don't have to pay me. Just send me the papers. It's fine. You know, I, I know it was work for hire. What am I going to do? Lie about it? I know. You know. I mean, I was the editor in chief of Marvel comics. I mean, how could I not know it was work for hire? So, so, uh, so anyway, uh, I, I said, no, no, just send me. He kept saying, no, no, we'd like to pay you, you know? And I said, no, I don't need to be paid for this. Just, this is the right thing to do. Let's just do it. So finally, so I'm, I, I'm prepared to pay you ten thousand dollars to sign your name. I said no. He said, "Take the money, stupid." <laughs> well, that's the thing because other people what might have held out. Other people might have been manipulative. Other no, people might I, have lied. You held your ground. You have character and integrity that is just massive. 
well, I didn't even want the money, but he, when he said, take your money, take the money, so I, I said, well, since you put it that way, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so they actually paid me to sign my name and I would have done it anyway, but, but, uh, but that's fine, you know, because like I say, I know that that was all stuff that, that, you know, I, I, I agreed that, that was theirs when I, when I get it and, and by both by being editor in chief and the fact that i I, I guess I must have signed something somewhere, but they, they couldn't find it or whatever. I don't know. I don't care. It, it's, it came out right. Well, the thing is, is that, like I said, other people maybe in that situation might have felt like they could ask for a lot more or maybe even trying to say they created it just because it was no proof. But you held your ground. You really did the right thing. And when people do the yeah. right thing, and they're an example for other humans. It's such a powerful thing. I just felt like that was so powerful. Like you, you could have taken that in a lot of different directions, but you chose to do the right thing. The bigger picture, you looked at the bigger picture. Well, yeah. And then, you know, since then, uh, and at that time, actually several very savvy business people that I know who, you know, heard about this, uh, they said, don't take the money, stupid. You know, I mean, they were like, no, no, you can get more. And I, I said, no, I don't even want this. But, you know, I'm not going to fight anymore. I'm just going to take it. And, um, and, and, and I said, but they were, they were telling me, no, you have to hold out for astronomical numbers. Yeah. So I said, no. And I, of course, I, I, when I was talking to this David Fogart guy, I, I said, usually when you try to get a clean chain of title for something, that means you have a movie in development. And he said he really couldn't tell me that. I said, I think you just did. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I, I assume there's, they're, they're at least working on it. At least making a Secret Wars movie would be hard because some of the rights to some of the characters are tied up elsewhere. Probably a little minefield of legal negotiations that they'd have to go through. But I think it, it, it seems to me they must have uh, at least been uh, working on it. Uh, to to uh, want to get all those buttons buttoned up. Hollywood these days they're very risk averse. They don't want to be sued after the fact. They don't want to, you know, make a movie and then find out somebody has some claim to it. Right. Uh, they want to make sure that there's a clean chain of title that that uh, whoever's representing something to them actually owns it. Well, it's just amazing because by doing the right thing you just opened yourself up to more blessings to come into your life like the, the energy is just going to come back it's just it's just amazing you know you did the right thing and it just it just shows how much of a good person you are how strong your integrity well, is how incredible your character is it just really impressed <laughs> me i should say well thanks a lot well, the other the other thing that happened recently was uh maybe something you've heard about or maybe not but uh a comic book that you wrote, speaking of Secret Wars, one of the pages of original art sold and broke the record for the highest amount of money ever paid for a page of original comic book art. Did you know about this? I heard about it recently. Uh, it was a, a Mike Zek page. Yes. It was from Secret Wars. And it was it's Secret Wars number eight, I think. That's where the black suit uh, Started. That's correct. And it was page 25 and it's actually the first image of Peter Parker Spider-Man wearing the black costume for the first time. It sold for $3.36 million. <laughs> and Mike probably sold that page way back when for 50 bucks. 
It's mind blowing. I mean, and that crossed yeah. your desk probably dozens of times, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, the fact is that uh, when I was writing for Marvel, I took off my editor in chief hat and I put on my writer hat. And I always had an editor, and I let him, you know, handle the traffic and doing everything, including things like writing the cover copy and stuff, picking the colorist and the artist and so forth. And I, I just acted like a, a writer, and so it wasn't a lot of it wasn't going across my desk. Now, if the editor that I I chose to be the editor, you know, if you ever did something really off the rails, I I'd put the editor in chief hat back on. But but usually, you know, I mean, I had great people working for me, and you know, they they did a good job. And and it's always good to have a second pair of eyes. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're the boss. I don't care what. You you know, you should always have somebody look over your stuff and. Every once in a while, one of them will say, "Hey, what about this?" You know. Uh, so, so but mostly they like my stuff, and it wasn't there was never any problem with it. But uh, so most of the you know, that pages going across the desk would would have been happening in the office next door, Tom Falco's office. Oh, I see. But um, d- does that shock you, though? I mean, is that shocking to hear? I, it's it's stunning. It, it is it is amazing, and I understand that. Uh, uh, there was, was Amazing Fantasy number fifteen also sold for three point something. Yes, uh, that was that was definitely a million. big sale recently. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think, Jim, that as humans, that we finally crossed a threshold where people that value art, the art that humans create, have we've crossed a threshold and they now value comic book art in that same way, where previously it was relegated to children's art or not taken seriously. Now it is very much taken seriously. What do you think about that? I think it's uh, it's it's for sure. I mean, I think that uh, and there's uh, there's all this other stuff going on, like uh, uh, NFTs and stuff like that. Right. And um, uh, so some people are selling rights to that, and then I understand that DC Comics is trying to crack down on anybody who tries to NFT, you know, DC art page. <laughs> so I mean. That tells me that they think it's a big deal, and and that, that you know, like uh, there's, there's, it's going to be, uh, it's going to mean something so, in the future. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I don't know, but but uh, uh, it, it seems like there's a lot of phenomena, you know, uh, uh, gathering around this this business and um, and sports and other things too. But but. Uh, um, it's interesting times we live in. Yes, and, definitely. Uh, yeah. In a lot of ways. But the, yeah. the thing is, is that the overall value of original comic book art over the last two years or three years has increased dramatically by hundreds yes. of percentage points. It's, it's just really an amazing thing for someone that has loved comics forever and has always seen the art in every panel not just every page but every panel it's so amazing to finally see the appreciation coming from yeah, people well, com- that, that love art yeah well comic book artists are, are, are almost you know they're, they're they're the best artists in the world in, in a way which is if you're yeah, famous advertising artists they, they take photos they pose models they they'll do um you know, iteration after iteration, they'll trace, trace it, improve it, this and that. They have like weeks to create one drawing. The comic book artists, they have to do this up to, you know, well, sometimes six or 12 times a day, no models, just out of their head, get the perspective right, 
draw this room, make it look like it looks, draw, you know, me sitting there and, 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 and just have to be able to do that and then go on to the next thing, do that, do, do it again, do it 12 times a day, maybe. And that's the, the, the level of skill is unbelievable. And I, I, now that I've been going to conventions more and seeing all the, the you know, new young artists, uh, man, these guys are great. And it's about time they get some appreciation. Uh, it's not just, you know, junk art. This is, no. this is the product of highly skilled people. And then some of it is really beautiful. And, and all of it is amazing. So anyway. Well, it's just amazing that we cross that threshold finally. And the outer, yeah. the outer world is, is finally seeing the beauty of what we've seen this entire time. You've seen for over five decades. It's just really amazing. But DC though is struggling a little bit right now. Since you brought up DC, it's a, it's a little hard to hear, but from what I understand, they're hemorrhaging money and really only the Batman comics are even breaking, even, even making a little bit of money. All of their other titles are underwater. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, I'm pretty certain that's true. Cause I mean, I, I know the economics pretty well and I'm, I'm looking at the sales figures and stuff and, and even Batman isn't doing that. You know, that's not going to save them. Um, uh, and they've, they've had some big layoffs. Uh, and in recent times they fired their CEO, they, they fired three vice presidents. They, they fired 10% of their support staff. That was just the first wave. Now they have another big wave of layoffs. And I think that, uh, you know, yes, they are hemorrhaging money. Well, they they kind of always did. Um, you know, they 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 uh, the days where they were making money is the fifties and the sixties, and it started to fade away. Um, they were they were they were. I, how do I know this? Well, Bill Sarnoff from DC Comics called me up in the eighties uh, when I was at Marvel, and he offered to let Marvel publish all the DC characters, uh, he, he wanted to license them to us. He said, he said, you guys seem to make money publishing and we lose $10 million a year. <sighs> I said, wow. You know, that was in the eighties when things were booming, <laughs> you know, That's and then every, all the rising tide lifted all the boats and they were doing the occasional things like Watchman or dark Knight or whatever. And, and, uh, um, you know, I mean, they were ha- having what you think was some success. On the other hand, they, they had expensive quarters, tremendous overhead, a lot of, lot of people with, you know, funny baloney jobs and big fat salaries. And, and, uh, you know, and, and a lot of the books just weren't, you know, performing. But, but, uh, so now it's like, I mean, it, it must be even worse for them to be, um, you know, like uh, shedding people like crazy hundreds. Well, from what and, I, uh, sorry to interrupt, but from yeah. what I understand, they had staged themselves in 2011 to have a very successful cinematic universe, uh, and then had the comics to kind of correspond with that to be supplementary, but then their, uh, cinematic universe was not successful. Their Zack Snyder, uh, cinematic universe tanked, which then cause the comic books to also fail. I, I, what I understand is they just closed this massive office in LA. So it, it looks yeah. like DC is really hurting. Yeah, I think so. I think that they, you know, I mean, I don't think that, uh, the failure of the cinematic universe hurt the books. I think the books hurt themselves. Uh, I, uh, you know, they, they, the thing is they, they, um, I don't know. I, there didn't seem to be anybody steering that ship. And, and, and it was, uh, they're, they're doing a lot of cheesecake and, and sort of self-indulgent stuff and 
and uh, they kept, you know, I don't know, their titles weren't even related to the movies sometimes, so I don't think they made much difference. Um, but I, I mean, I think they, they just, you know, they lost their way. And, you know, and they, they lost their way a long time ago. I mean, they kind of never really got, but they, they had these individual projects that are great, like Watchmen or something. Right. But then, you know, for the for the, the most of the stuff, it's just sort of uh, helter-skelter. They keep doing reboots, you know, uh, Countdown and Crisis and another Crisis and <laughs> New 52. You know, I mean, it just got silly. And, uh, Very you know, much I mean, so. you can do that trick. Yeah, I did in my blog a, a, a little article on that. I, I said it's, it's like it's like uh, when uh, football season starts and Lucy holds the football for Charlie Brown to kick. She always just yanks it out of the way. She wants to kick it and falls on his back. That's us. We we're, we're we're Charlie Brown. We keep you know DC's restarting. Oh, so they, we we buy the books for a few few months and then uh, stop because they're not good. And, and you know, so some of them are beautiful. I tell you, back to the art. It seems like the quality of art these days is generally, you know, much higher Shock- than it used to be. Some of it's shockingly good compared to especially yeah. the decades of the 70s and 80s and 90s. Some of an uh, uh, the average comic book artist of today would have been considered a mind-blowing superstar of the 80s and 90s. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like, uh, you know, in, in, the, in my era, there was Neil Adams and one or two other, you know, guys who were just sort of really superstars. And, 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 and most, most of the guys were, were, uh, not that good, not, not as good. Okay. And, and the thing is that the reason that came about is because for years, the, they did, the comics kept declining in terms of the pay scale. Uh, the artists couldn't, weren't making any money. So no, the good artists, as soon as they could get any other work, they would take it. And, uh, it's just kind of like a few old dinosaurs and some, some, and some new kids who liked, uh, who, who just loved loved Spider Man or whatever comics and, and wanted to do it, but um, but we changed that and we we bought at Marvel in the in the eighties. We we I doubled the rates, I doubled them again, and we kept increasing them. You know, all these benefits, stuff paid all their expenses and everything, and royalties that came in. And so for a little while, that was starting to turn. And I think that uh, it, it did turn. And, and the fact that uh, there are artists, ways artists can make money now selling pages and so forth means that it, it's still appealing. You still get your Alex Rosses and, and, and your other people. Right. Um, yeah. But uh, I mean, like Frank Miller uh, did the covers for unity for me, like more or less as a favor. I mean, uh, uh, he said, you know, I'll do them for free. And I said, no, I'll pay you. I just can't pay you $10,000 a cover or whatever your rate is. I actually wanted to ask and, you uh, about that. Cause that story has actually never been told of how you got, Frank Miller and Walt Simonson to do those unity covers. And I just want to point out that uh, the shadow man, Frank Miller cover is for sale right now on heritage auctions. It's currently going for 16,500. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, some of them are going for much, much higher. Oh, of course. Yeah. And, and, and uh, the, the way I got Frank was, uh, you know, I were valiant and this is, you know, we're starting to be, we had a lot of debt and we were starting to get out of that and get to the point where we had some money. We didn't have much yet when I was doing the unity covers, which is a couple months before June, I guess, uh, in 92. So we still didn't have money to throw around at all. We're just, you know, trying to, uh, get by. And, 
And so I had Unity and I wanted to have some great covers. I wanted to get something to get attention because we had a lot riding on that. And um, I called Frank and I said, Frank, I know I can't afford you. I said, uh, but uh, have this special thing, uh, this Unity crossover within the books, two months, eight titles a month. I said, I really want to get some good covers for it. You know, uh, what can you do for me? I was hoping that he would like give me a discount, maybe do one cover, you know. And he said he would do, he said, I'll do it for free. And I said, no, no, not for free. You know? And I said, we'll pay you, just can't pay you, you know, vast fortune. He said, well, what do you pay Windsor Smith? And I said, 500. And he said, all right, I'll do it for 500. Wow, my so, God. So he did them for 500 bucks a piece. Oh, my and God. Then, you know, he did eight, he did one month, eight, eight covers for, for 500 bucks a piece. And then, and then, uh, um, I was t- uh, talking to him and he said, great, Frank. And you know, we have another eight. And he says, oh, give me a break. <laughs> 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 and, and I said, he said, call Walt. And I said, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll call Walt Frank. You know, and so anyway, but, I mean, he was such a good guy about it. You can't <laughs> believe it. And I, so I call Walt. And I said, Walt, we got this, these eight covers, you know, and I, again, I can't, I couldn't afford Walt's rate. Uh, I said, what can you do for me? He said, well, what would you pay Frank? And I said, 500. And he said, all right, I'll do it for $500 and five cents a cover. So for the rest of my life, I can tell everybody I was paid more than Miller. (laughs) (laughs) And he does. And and, so I paid him $500 and five cents. Wow. He, he did great covers. They were, both of those guys just knocked it out of the park. And it did get a lot of attention. People saw those covers and said, hmm, let me check this out. And, and so Unity books sold tremendously and, and really kind of put value on the map. Oh, yeah. Those covers are legendary. And they were at the time because the correlation was that uh, Frank Miller's Sin City project was exploding at the exact same time those covers were released. So it was very shocking to think that you could rope in such a superstar at the moment. Of course, your history as a kid, I didn't know your history, but uh, it was shocking then to be like, wow, they, you know, they got the, the top guy right now, the most popular comic book artist to do all eight covers. It's shocking. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was at Frank's house like a year or so ago. I don't know. Maybe more than that. But, uh, and he has the Eternal Warrior cover framed and on his wall. So I think he's pleased with them. And I'm, I'm pretty sure he gets a lot of money for them if, he's, <sighs> if he decides to sell. Well, he did let the Shadow Man one go at some point because it's on Heritage yeah. Auctions right now. And I thought that maybe Walter Simonson was interested because in the 1960s Magnus Robot Fighter comics, he actually sent in some fan art as a child. And so I thought that he thought would think that was interesting that here he is back now drawing the cover for a Magnus Robot Fighter comic. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I'm aware of that fan art and, and uh, you know, I mean, Walt loved comics when he was a kid, and, and still does. But, oh my God, he's one of the greats of all time. Like you can't even really. Oh yes, that. absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. You know, Frank did a, Frank did eight covers that formed these giant glowing hands. Yes. So Walt, not to be undone, did an Escher perspective, and all his covers fit together into one one illustration too. Yes, and and, and they're very beautiful. I've seen the posters where all of the artists combined without the dress the logos and such mm-hmm. and it just looks stunning i mean both both of those group of covers look stunning they're absolutely amazing yeah that was great those guys really uh 
were good to me. Yes, yes, of course. Yeah. Um, there were a couple questions that some listeners sent in after we talked on our previous episode. One of them was about Defiant Comics, and one listener wanted to know if Plasm, the comic that you did with David Lapham, was shopped to Topps Comics first because he felt like there was a brief window of time where Plasm was going to be published by Tops under Jim Salakrup. No, nothing, nothing like that ever took place. When I left Valiant, I had to sort of wait out my contract, right? But because uh, I, I, I couldn't do any, uh, you know, serious money raising or, or anything like that until uh, the end. But, but I, I, I could work on my own stuff, you know. And uh, I created Plasm back in 1987. Oh my God! Um, yeah, and and uh, I I had it, you know, in the drawer, and not sure exactly what I was going to do with it, and then uh, um, it kind of didn't fit my my concept for Valiant, so I kept it in the drawer, and um, and so finally, uh, I uh, uh, when when my contract with Valiant was up, and, and I started raising money, I also started. Um, you're seriously working on, on Plasm. And uh, David Lapham had told me that, you know, he didn't like the evil, nasty pirates who stole Valiant from me. And he hated them, but he needed the gig. And he said, as soon as you start, he said, call me. And uh, so uh, I did. And I met with him, uh, I think, in a, in a hotel in New York, because uh, he lived down at Tom's River. And uh, so we we talked about it. And he was interested in doing doing plasma, and uh, uh, he, uh, he he did uh, he, he did some designs and stuff like that. And I didn't like them. I said no, David. I said you're drawing metal guns. These people are carrying you know metal items. There's no metal. It's all alive. And he he's like you know, oh oh, and and then I mean I described various things we needed, but. But man, he took it and ran with it. I mean, he oh my god, he was uh, just going doing doing great stuff. Um, so anyway, we uh, uh, I did raise money. The money I raised was a, from a, a, an investor group called the River Group. Yes, of River course. Group also also owned a trading card company, um, and so part of the deal was that we would do trading cards. The guy was saying, "Well, you know, what are you going to do? I just you know the picture of the character and on the back, you know." facts about him or what. And I said, well, I've been the storyteller my whole life. Let's tell a story. And he said, oh, oh, okay. And so I showed him how it would work. It, you know, sometimes two or three cards would form one picture. Sometimes, you know, one card would be a panel, you know. Uh, sometimes the whole page would be, you know, uh, all the nine cards, I guess, I guess on a page, you know, would form one picture, whatever. He was thrilled. And uh, so uh, David did that. That was our, our zero issue of the uh, card set. Yes. It was published as a comic book, but it was given away in the Diamond catalog. Right. Uh, I think eventually it was reprinted so everybody could get it. But um, uh, it was, um, uh, uh, you know, really interesting. It was a huge hit for these guys. They. They made back all the money they invested times like three or four. Oh my god! And uh, and we we got a little royalty, which was, um, 
But at any rate, all right, so, so I got this going. In a toy fair that year, uh, which is around, around Valentine's Day, uh, toy fair in New York, uh, every year uh, a friend of mine, uh, the president of those characters from Cleveland, TCFC, would come to Toy Fair, and every year we would go to the Palm Two and have a steak. And uh, so, uh, TCFC was monstrously successful, hugely successful. They did things like strawberry shortcake, the Care Bears, um, uh, uh, Holly Hobby. Uh, uh, I can't think of a lot of them. Yes, a lot of great successful properties. And they, for a while, they were riding high, you know. And then, uh, and Ralph was the president. He was, he was, the, they had two presidents. They were co-presidents. Ralph was the uh, a creative president. The other guy was the business guy. <laughs> and they split the job in two halves. And, um, but Ralph was my buddy. And, and uh, we, he, he, when he came, we went, we went out to dinner. And so well, we go out to dinner. And LPS, uh, TCFC not only, you know, came up with things like the Care Bears, which they developed with Burning Lumens. They, they they also uh, had a lot of toy designers and engineers, so that when they went to a toy company with a property, they could say they could show like prototypes and things. So this is what we imagine, you know, uh, to to um, help the toy company develop it. And uh, so anyway, uh, I knew that. And um, so Ralph and I, the, oh, I gotta tell one more thing because they had been so successful. They, uh, they, they were a division of American Greetings. And because they, TCFC had been so successful, they, they decided to launch a toy company of their own. It was called Amtoy. Uh, the one product that you heard, heard of from Amtoy was Mad Balls. Maybe you've heard right. of Right. Yes, of course. I remember as a the, child, they the, were marketed to my generation. Yeah, little, little rubber balls and they had faces on them and the monstrous things. And I, anyway, so I actually invented a Mad Ball for them. I'll tell you later. But uh, um, the uh, uh, Amtoy uh, came out at the wrong time. Uh, there was a downturn in the toy market. They they just they were failing and uh, probably going to you know go out of business and maybe take TCFC with them. Uh, so uh, uh, so I was talking around. He's telling me you know his woes. And he asked me what I was doing. I said, "Well, I'm starting this other company." And I made him an offer. I said, I said, I deliberately created Plasm to be, this is a toy term, toyetic. Yes, that's I a, remember. The term industry uses that, that term. And I said, deliberately created this to be toyetic. I said, I said, how would you like to have your guys, you know, develop the toys or, you know, prototypes? And, uh, and how would you like to represent us for license? He said, he said, you might be, you know, throwing me the, the, the rope that saves my life here. And I said, fine. He said, standard terms? I said, 50-50. He said, what? I said, 50-50 on the licensing and because uh, you're being your agent and 50-50 on the toy, we get everything else. Yes. You know, all the media, whatever, stuff like that. Yet another example so of your said, incredible integrity. I do remember this story. Well, he said, he said, he said, he said, you know, it's too much. Why? And I said, because you inspired me because Plasm is based on a bunch of things you said when we were talking years ago about maybe a joint venture between Marvel and TCFC. You were, you were saying 
uh, you thought little boys like gory stuff and you know slime bones and bones and and you know uh, gooey snails and you know, I mean I said I, I took that to heart and I said that's part of my inspiration for plasma and he said this is nothing like I was talking about and I said I said well I it, Tim, you inspired me and that's that's fair in my mind so anyway they started developing it you know and. Uh, um, after a while, a bunch of us were making the card set and start working on the comics. And so myself, David Lapham, and I don't know, I think Winston Folks, um, we flew out to Cleveland to see their presentation, see the prototypes they intended to present. And they were nice. They really were. They, they had figured out ways to do soft plastic and make, make some, some creatures and things that were really really good and, and they did stuff I can't remember what but they anyway and then so they wanted us to see and maybe give comments and stuff so we did and um, and then Ralph says All right, I think we're ready to, to pitch who should we call and I said Mattel we have to call Mattel and he said why and I said because Kenner has boys toys and, and Hasbro has boys toys and Mattel has, has Barbie right I remember you know and 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 they and they they have uh, Master of the Universe, but that's a little kid thing. You know, that's a real little kid thing. I said, I said they need this. This this is their GI Joe. You know, and 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 so uh, he said, okay. Um, he said, well, you, we both know Jill. Who should call her? I said, you're the toy guy. You call her. You know, <laughs> so he did. And right away, she said, come on out. You know, give us your pitch. So we did. We flew out to L.A. Um, it was me. Ralph Schaefer and the other president of, of TCFC, uh, the business guy whose name escapes me at the moment. But but at any rate, uh, so we went and then Ralph said, "Do you mind if we pitch something of ours as well?" And I said, "No." So I, so Jill had all of the girls' toy people in the room, and Ralph pitched something, and they didn't like it. <laughs> and and it was like, um, oops, you know. <laughs> And so, so, so then she chases out, Jill Barat chases out all the girls' toys, executives, and she brings in all the boys' toys. I mean, it's a giant conference room. It must have been like 20 guys there. But this is the whole executive staff, right? So I did the pitch for Plasm. And, and so I get to the end of the pitch, and Jill says, this is how it's going to work. You get five points, we get five points. Each of us will probably have to give up a, a point to Margaret. That's Margaret Lesh, Fox Children's Network. And she said, but it, it will be on television. And, and, and we'll, uh, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll finance all that. And that that's, that, that's us. We'll finance all of that. She said, she said uh, we'll give you $1 million advance and a $3 million guarantee. And she said, that's a fraction. This is going to be big. And she said, she said, that's a tiny bit. That, that's like, you know, uh, you know, you're getting the royalties will blow you away. Oh, and, yeah. uh, and she, and she said, uh, she said, uh, she said, so, uh, you know, um, uh, well, she goes through a couple of terms and, uh, and, you know, we're, we think we won the lottery, you know? And, and so, uh, so finally she, she finishes rattling off the terms. She says, you and Schaefer get out of here, leave your business guy. <laughs> <laughs> and so Schaefer and I got out of there, and and so uh, so we walk out just high fiving, man. We thought we we did it, we did it, we did it. But you there, know? Were, there, and, uh, there was a foil in that story, and the foil is the River Group, right? No, the foil in the story is Marvel. Oh, okay, they sued because you. what happened is 
what happened is they had, when the trading card set came out, it was called Plasm. I get a call from Terry Stewart. He says, oh, I ring to see you over this Plasm thing. I said, why? And he, he said, he said, because we, um, it, it infringes on one of our trademarks. I said, what trademark? I searched this. You know, what are you talking about? Well, they had the name, and only the name. No creative work had been done yet. Right. But they had the name Plasmer registered with, this is something you can do with trade work, registered with intent to use. In other words, it wasn't in use. It was registered with intent to use. And that was in the U.K. It wasn't even here. That's why it didn't turn up in my search. So anyway, uh, I said, Terry, Kim, give me a break. I said, you've got a Black Knight that Marvel, or DC's got a Black Knight. You've got Wonder Man, they've got Wonder Woman. You've got Power Man, they've got Power Girl. Don't tell me this is too close. And he's, oh, no, Jim, um, it, it really is. And so we have to sue you. And Yes. Very, said, All right. very legendary so story. We, this is very well known in comic book circles. Yeah. And so, so I mean, they, they, they tried to, uh, uh, we, we, our lawyers met and, and they made a settlement. And the settlement was that I would change the, the name to Warriors of Plasm. I mean, they, they said, add words. And I said, how about Warriors of? And they said, fine. And, and they agreed. We had an agreement. We drew up a contract. We signed it, and we sent it to them for signature. They drew up the contract. We signed it and sent it back to them for their signature. And uh, so we had a settlement. P.S. Uh, uh, Mattel liked Warriors of Plasm better than just Plasm. Right. Okay? So, so they were happy. Um, so, but they never, they never returned the signed document. And so my, my financial guy, Winston, a very smart guy, he said, I know what they're up to. He said, they're going to wait until the day we ship, and they're going to serve a, a temporary restraining order. And if we don't get those revenues, we're dead. And I said, okay, which is, that's their plan. So I called, uh, I, I thought, what am I going to do with this? So I called Marie-Jose Daniela, who's our, handled our printing account up at um, uh, Cape And I told her what was up. And she said, I'll take care of it. And I said, how? She said, you don't need to know that. And I said, yes, ma'am, I don't need to know. <laughs> so sure enough, sure enough, on the day that Plasma was supposed to ship, uh, Cable Corps was served with a temporary restraining order, right? And Marie Jose, I guess, was there, you know, expecting this. And she said, gentlemen, we will be very happy to stop the shipping of, of Warriors of Plasma number one. However, Warriors of Plasma number one is interlaced on every single pallet that has a Marvel comic on it. You stop there, you stop all of yours. And because all shrink wrap. Right, right, of course, shrink. yes. He says, you stop theirs, you stop all of yours. And they would have so lost all that through. revenue as well. Yeah, so so that would have been hurt. And so so they withdrew the temporary restraining order, plasm shipped, and, but then they sued us for temporary injunction, and we won but it cost me $300,000 to win and we missed our window with Mattel because they couldn't go forward while, while the suit was pending. So now when you get a $3 million guarantee, you also, the, the, uh, Jill Barad told me, she said, she said, it's really 9 million because you, 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 you're going to get a 3 million guarantee for the ancillaries and a 3 million guarantee for the international. It's usually roughly about the same. And I said, wow, 9 million bucks. And that's just the guarantee. And the sky's the limit. You know, it could be, it could turn into turtles. It could be, you know, who knows? Right. But, um, 
could be a billion dollar property. Anyway, it didn't happen, and, and it, it did sink our ship. It killed us. So that, that they got what they wanted. Yes, but two questions that come out of that: one, do any of the prototype toys still exist? And two, how different is the 1987 version of Plasm that you developed over time? How different is it from what came to fruition in the 90s? Well, uh, I don't know what happened to the prototypes. TCFC eventually did go under. Uh, Ralph uh, ended up moving over to the UK and running our operation there, the uh, American Greetings operation. Um, I don't know what happened to the other guy. I don't know what happened to the prototypes. Uh, so um, they could still be but, out there. But it's, I might be. But, but the thing is, the, the plasm I created in 1987 was exactly the plasm that we did. In, in, in the 90s. Oh, wow. 94, whatever. I mean, I created it then and, and, you know, had it in the back of my mind, developed it along the way. But it was the same thing. It, it stuck. I did the fundamental creation and it was exactly the same. Well, that makes sense because the Warriors of Plasm stories are literally some of the greatest comics ever, ever created. And Thanks. David Lapham's art is some of the most stellar comic book artwork ever created for comics. That comic itself, you could say, is peak comic booking. I mean, just peak comic book art form. It's, it, it's just mind-blowing. So that makes sense because the world building was so rich. There was so much density to Warriors of Plasm. Yeah. It makes sense that, that you had been working on it for that long. Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah, exactly. And, and uh, like I said, the original idea, the original creation, nothing about that changed. I just kept sort of adding on to it as I, I guess, when I had time over the intervening years. But uh, never, you know, like I said, it just okay. it wasn't the right fit for for Valiant, and it, it wasn't. Uh, I didn't have enough, another opportunity until Defiant. So. I see. Um, but and uh, David, that, that you can't can't say good enough good about David. This guy is just—he's <laughs> just phenomenal and so creative. And I never saw anybody learn as quickly as David, except Frank Miller. Yes. You know, Frank. As soon as he started working and, and was getting input, you know, um, you know, from from me and other people, uh, every time he'd do a job, he'd, he'd make a quantum leap. He'd get you know that much better, that much better. And uh, same with David. Right, right off the bat, you know, he, he gets it. I mean, I laid out a couple of pages for him on his first job. And then uh, he actually explained, this is what we do. This is why we do it. So after a few pages, he says, let me try. I said, okay. And he started trying. And he listened to what I said. And he was he was getting it. I'm looking at these layouts. I'm saying, yeah, okay, move this over here and make that bigger. And it's good. Uh, so he was just, you know, by leaps and bounds, he was he was getting better and better, and and he's so creative. All that stuff he did with plasma just blow you away. I still look at it about once a year. I pull out the books and really just analyze each panel because they're just it's just stunning comic book artwork. But I do have a couple more questions from listeners before we get to our next segment, which is going to be incredible, where we bring in more guests. One question uh, that a listener sent in is that. Was there going to be a good guys number zero card set in the vein of the Dark Dominion and Plasm card sets? Yeah, probably. Um, but uh, by the time that that came around, uh, a the market had crashed. The market went from if you call the peak a hundred percent, it had dropped down to about twenty percent in a matter of a couple of months. 
So in in that dying market, also the retailers had bought heavily into the death of Superman and right. the rebirth of Superman, and they couldn't sell it through. So they were choking on their inventory. They were also choking on a lot of image books that they bought big numbers and couldn't sell. Um, and some Marvel books, other Marvel books that they bought big numbers and couldn't sell. So they basically choked themselves to death. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, they started dying by the droves and, uh, the whole industry was just in, in free fall. I do remember. So we had that against us. We had this stupid lawsuit that took not, a, not only cost me $300,000 and a lot of my time, it, it also killed my $9 million guarantee and it, and, and potentially something bigger than, than, than that. And, uh, you know, like I said, Marvel wanted to be dead because if I had died, I, I, within like a year or so, I took a 17% market share. Most of it came out of their hide. Oh, yeah. They and, didn't uh, want you. They didn't want you making another Valiant Comics you know, that was successful. Yeah. When the, when the judge, it was a, the judge, uh, was federal court trademark. So the judge, it was just him. There was no jury. And uh, so when he read his verdict, his opinion at the end, it was a scathing denunciation of Marvel and, and actually a very nice review. Of <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and, 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 and after he, he read his thing, see, there was a temporary injunction. There are three categories. You have to win every point of every category to get your injunction. They lost every point of every category. We won every point of every category. Right. So he calls the Marvel lawyers up to the bench and he has a good hand on the mic that you could hear him. And, and he says, he says, he, he said, um, if you, if, if Marvel ever use, if you guys ever use my court as a business weapon, again, you will severely regret it. He said, you will withdraw this suit. You will not appeal or you will severely regret it. And, and they're like, hey, hey. and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, I mean, he was furious. Oh, I bet. Yeah, he later, be, he later became the attorney general in the United States. Oh my God. But, uh, yeah. It was, uh, 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 Michael B. Casey. Wow. And when he was during the trial, when he, when, whenever he spoke, I mean, I thought this is the smartest man I've ever, ever seen. If he says I'm wrong, I'm wrong, you know, <laughs> but I wasn't wrong. I was right. And, and, uh, and he was, he was furious with Marvel. And, and, and so, uh, they did withdraw, but it was too late. And, 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 that that was that was why projects like Good Guys and stuff like that didn't get the the, the full treatment. Well, I thought it was interesting that uh, there was an article published in 1994 where you pointed out that you were willing at the time to take unsold Dark Dominion binders for the cards in exchange for the new version of Dark Dominion number zero, which was going to be a limited edition penciled by Joe James that never came to fruition. I thought that was very amazing as well that you noticed that that trading card market at the time had just totally tanked even more than the, uh, the comic market. And you were willing to take those in exchange, even though the company didn't make it to that point. Yeah. The the, the trading cards went first and then the comics soon followed. And back in that, that year of the, of the collapse, uh, Diamond was, you know, of course, booming. Diamond just comic distributors, right? And uh, they used to, they used to every, they published a magazine, they published their their catalog. They had a lot of publications that in and around comics. For their magazine, every year um, at the beginning of the year, I think they would get the industry luminaries. You know, I guess I was a luminary then, and um, they would get them to write their 
their projection for the year, their 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 you know prognosis for for what what was going to happen with the comics. And so every single one of these people wrote, "Oh, bigger and better, we're booming, the sales are going to keep climbing, we're going to all be you know doing really well." And I wrote, "This is a bubble; it's going to burst." You're publishing. You're 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 publishing phony collectibles. You're doing. You're you're making comic book companies into the into the Franklin Mint. You just saw what happened to the trading card companies. You know why do you think comics will be different? And I I I, I, I I'm preaching. Tell good stories. Tell them well. Forget the foil covers. Forget all the gimmicks and events and all that stuff like that. And 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 you know I was like the voice in the wilderness. You know. And I was thoroughly ignored and sometimes ridiculed. And then, of course, in well, I guess it was August, boom, you know, the climate yeah. of the crash game. Well, you know, I did track down who owns the rights, I think, to the Defiant Properties today, except for Ward Answer, which is owned by Alan Weiss. But NBC Universal now owns Classic Media, which purchased the rights. As- yeah. So it's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, they're still out there. NBC Universal. The title is NBC Universal's Classic Media. So, which is pretty amazing. Right. So, maybe someday, huh. you never know, the Defiant Properties could come back. You never know. Well, hmm, interesting. I just had a phone call related. Mm-hmm. Let's put it <laughs> Okay. Well, um, we're going to move on to the next segment of this very, very special episode with Jim Shooter. And this segment is really about bringing in people that understand Jim's work specifically and absolutely love it. His work specifically with Valiant Comics, Defiant Comics, and Broadway Comics. All three of those companies are companies that Jim Shooter founded and was a massive part of. And we're going to bring in people who have focused on these properties for a very, very long time. The first guest that we're going to bring in to speak with Jim Shooter is named Greg Holland. And Greg Holland, uh, about 20 years ago, started a Valiant Comics fan site. It was the first major Valiant Comics fan site ever on the internet. It's currently called valiantfans.com. And he has absolutely loved you as a person, loved your Valiant work, loved everything that you've contributed to the comics book world for a really long time. Enough so to devote his personal energy, his time, his money, his thinking energy into maintaining this, this, uh, portal, you could say, this destination for all Valiant Comics fans. So what we're going to do is we're going to bring Greg Holland on. There's actually four guests, but first we're going to bring Greg Holland on to ask Jim a few questions that he's always wanted to ask. So let's see if he's here. Greg, can you hear me? I can. Greg, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for starting ValiantFans.com. And... This is your chance to talk to Jim Shooter himself, the man himself. Hey, Greg, how you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, I know you've met 100,000 people through the years, and I'm one of them. You met me in 2009, yeah. so I'm sure you yeah. remember that. I was standout yes, from I all do. the 100,000 that you've met. <laughs> 
Um, I have listened to many of your interviews through the years, and so I wanted to try to hit on some items that maybe you haven't talked about before. Uh, would you talk about the earliest Valiant items, the the promotional, the non-superhero, Nintendo, the wrestling? Uh, how many of those got printed? They didn't seem to make it to comic shops, but they they seem to have made it somewhere. So where did they get distributed? And uh, did you have any creative control? Those things in the non-superhero era. Well, the story about that was that when I started Valiant, I started it with the intention of doing superheroes. And I, I went to Richard Bernstein of Western Publishing, and he knew me because he uh, tried to buy Marvel at one point. He gave up on it because he said he, he just hated these management people. So they kept trying to nickel and dime. Uh, this, he gave up on he, he, he actually walked away. He didn't give up on it. He walked away. Uh, after spending $500,000 on due diligence. That's how pissed off he was. And uh, um, so anyway, but during the time where he was actually looking into buying Marvel, he got to, he had to meet me. I was a key man. And, and so we met uh, three times. And uh, the third time, yeah, by that time, he was just, you know, like, he, he, he said, uh, you know, none of these other departments are doing well. I mean, these executives, they're stupid. And the only thing going well is your part, you know, and we were, we were doing great. Um, I had the greatest team on earth. But anyway, uh, uh, he said, sometimes I think I'm buying you and a bunch of used furniture. He didn't mean me. He meant us. But, <laughs> but the thing is, he did know me. And he said that, and I thought that was nice. So I went to him, and I licensed from him uh, Solar, Magnus, Turok, all that, everything. And uh, and I, I didn't have any money when I went to see him. And he, he said, I'll hold him for you. He held him for two years. That's how much he believed in. He said, no, I'm holding him for Jim. You know? And so because he got big offers, but he, he didn't take them. All right, so I'm setting out. We start the company. I'm setting out to do my superheroes. And then my partner, Steve Masarski, tells me he's sleeping with banker, Melanie Open. And uh, I'm like, uh, hmm. Well, my other partner objected. They convened board fire. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and uh, so here I am. I, I, yeah, I, didn't, I didn't want to be there anymore. You know, I, but, but the fact is that a lot of people had come to work for me, Don Perlin, Janet Jackson, Jade Mady, other people. And if I left, the place would close down and they all would be out of work. And at that time, I was sort of the pariah of comics, so they probably wouldn't be able to get, they'd probably be blackballed elsewhere. So anyway, um, Masarski, once he was essentially, you know, uh, they, he had me outvoted on the board. And technically, I was the CEO, but uh, he had me outvoted on the board because he and Melanie together had more stock than I did. And uh, so he was a lawyer, an entertainment lawyer. He represented, he was on retainer to Nintendo mm. for media and entertainment. So he made a deal with himself, both sides of the table, <laughs> that we would license Nintendo. He's on both sides of the table. He's shaking his own hand. And and uh, he got a giant fat fee for this. And, and, and it, it took a whole big bunch of money out of our or, or small rub stake anyway. And, uh, uh, you know, because I had to pay in advance to these, these, these people. And now I'm doing Nintendo comics. Like mm -hmm. I said, I didn't want to quit because, 
you know, I, I, I leave everybody in the lurch. And I, I couldn't do that to Don, but Don Perlin, 60 some years old, who's going to hire him? You know? And, and so, uh, so anyway, I, uh, my plan was tough it out, do the best we can, do good books, try to make them sell. If I could just make a little money, then I could raise money and buy those turkeys out, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so I tried, I did my best. I mean, Nintendo was not likely to succeed. The way they were distributed was usually to, we, we had a, a deal for a short time with Toys R Us. We had uh, small deals around for, for distribution distribution here and there. Uh, some uh, were sold in the direct market, but it wasn't likely to succeed. The only thing that ever was successful was a deal I tracked down. And Masarsi is supposed to be in charge of marketing, you know, right? And he wasn't doing anything. He was doing his law practice. Um, and so I, I tracked down a, a promotional um, uh, distributor, and I sold him half a million hardbacks. And, uh, so that's the only time we ever made money. That probably kept us alive a little while. Um, so then guess who else Masarski represents the world wrestling federation. <laughs> so he makes a deal with himself when he gets a big fat feed and all of a sudden I'm doing wrestling books. You know, <laughs> again, we did the best we could. I kept trying to succeed at something so we could, you know, I could buy these guys out. And, uh, and so, uh, that didn't work. And finally, I guess he ran out of clients, and I, I, I got to do my superheroes. Um, and, uh, of course, in the superheroes, you know, it was like uh, within nine months, we were making money. And within, uh, say, just a little over a year, we were 17% of the market and, and, and climbing. And, you know, Marvel's falling, and we're climbing. That's one of the reasons they didn't like me. But um, at any rate, and we were just, you know, really taken off. And uh, that's that's the story on the Nintendo and the wrestling books. And right after we started taking off, of course, they wanted to sell the company. I a long story, but I ended up, you know, being ousted. Jim, and, uh, I, then, I just yeah. want to cut in here and just ask a quick question to add to Greg's question. Would you consider the Nintendo Comics sneak peek that was published by Valiant Comics to be the first Valiant comic ever created because it is considered that way in collector's circles. It has Mario on the cover and it says sneak peek. And, and it is, yeah. it, would you consider that the first published Valiant comic? Well, I'm going from, from uh, memory here, but yes, I believe that is. Okay, Greg, go ahead. All right. Um, I, I think I got nostalgia somewhere in the late 1990s uh, for Valiant because I had gone from a 15-year-old who couldn't even drive himself to the comic shop to uh, a 21-year-old who, you know, totally grown up at 21. So I got my, I got my nostalgia early. Uh, but now we're at 30 years, uh, a little over 30 years since Valiant began. Um, they say time heals all wounds. Would you say there are still valiant wounds that are open? I never had any valiant wounds. I mean, I, I mean, I, 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 they did what they did. There was nothing I could do about it, and so I just started again. And I don't, I don't, I never even thought about those people. They, they became people I don't know. Okay. Including, including, including the people that they thought they could replace me with, because. They we had an offer, a bona fide offer for. They shopped the company behind my back. 
they got a bona fide offer from Paramount for $250 million. Okay. Mm-hmm. How do I know? Because I talked to the man at Allen and Company who conducted that deal. And his name was Enrique Sr. Give him a call. But anyway, um, uh, they, they had this, this big deal. But they, they, they're greedy. They, they wanted it all for themselves. And they wanted this, me to sign these draconian contracts where basically I'd get nothing and they'd get everything. And uh, uh, I wouldn't do that. Well, they had plan B. Plan B was get rid of me. Get Bob Layton to run the bullpen because he pretty much he, he did a lot of that anyway. Get uh, keep John Hart as the marketing guy, genius marketing guy, and um, and and then bring in a name to replace me. They were going to make, make Barry Windsor Smith the president, so they'd have a big name, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so that they they uh, when I wouldn't sign the the documents that enabled them to do the deal with Paramount because um, they, they they were. Not only was the bad deal bad for me, but there was like all kinds of bogus reps and warranties. Those are SEC documents that if I signed them, anything ever went wrong, they'd throw me in jail. I said, no, I'm not doing this. So uh, so when I wouldn't sign it, they convened the board. They didn't have enough members to fire me, but they'd had enough votes to add a member. So they added Fred Pierce, who worked with the bankers, and, uh, and so they fired me. I remember sitting there thinking, great, I don't have to stay up again all night, you know, finishing something. <laughs> and um, So anyway, uh, so I was, I, I was uh, let go. And, and they thought that, that they, they told the Paramount people, oh, Jim never really created anything anyway. It was all Bob Layton and Barry. Oh. And uh, he just wrote some dialogue, you know. <laughs> he, he, he was not... He was not important here. We have the important <laughs> guy, and and so Enrique Senior told me he, he when he told me when he was talking to Paramount, they backed off. They said, "No, we don't want it." Quote: "The creative guy's gone." Ah, uh, yeah. So, um, so it's a pyrrhic victory. I mean, it was like they they ended up not getting the quarter billion dollars they thought they were going to get. Then they start shopping it frantically, and they finally sold it to a claim for sixty five million dollars worth of stock. But of course, the stock plunged after that, and so it wasn't when they were near sixty-five million dollars. They did plenty well. They they dividended themselves a bunch of cash, and they 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 uh, they, they they were able to. They, they, the stock vested over five years. A claim went bankrupt in two years, so they only got two payments, and the stock was much depressed. So the payments were not very big, but but uh, uh, so I mean, they screwed. They screwed themselves. If they played fair with me, that have been. You know, uh, way better off. But uh, okay. so uh, you know, that's 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 what happened. It was it was uh, you know it was, a, it was a wild ride. But when we finally got to do the stuff I wanted to do with a bunch of kids right out of the Cubert School, a bunch of old guys, no one else would hire. No one wanted Stan Drake. No one wanted Steve Ditko. No one wanted John Dixon. No one wanted Ernie Cologne. These are great cartoonists. These are great guys. No one wanted Ralph Reese. Got them, and then I, of course had Barry and I Bob, and uh, you know, with that little ragtag team, we kicked Marvel's ass and Images mm. for that matter. DC was already more fun, so. But Jim, just anyway, to add, but the, just to add to that, yeah. how do you feel that you know all these years later that there's still Valiant Comics being published? Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's you know, wild. The, the people who the people who are own it now. 
uh, bought it fair and square out of the bankruptcy. It's theirs. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like, uh, you know, God bless them. I hope, I hope it works out. Well, it's actually, but, uh, it's been sold since then. Uh, it's been sold to, uh, DMG, which is now YEM, which is like a new company. So it's actually owned, uh, by completely different it's a Chinese company, correct? Yes, correct. Chinese it is, company. It yeah. is owned by China. It is owned by the partially by the Chinese government, if you can believe that. So yes, it is now a Chinese company, and some would say that they purchased that to have a entry or a, a portal or a way into a cinematic universe in American cinema. So that was the only reason they bought Valiant. Greg, what do you think about that? Oh, it's kind of uh, ironic, I guess I would say, that uh, Dinesh Shambhasani uh, found himself sort of in the, well, my other investors pushed me out scenario, since that is the story of Valiant in the early 1990s. The other <laughs> know, <right>? investors <laughs> pushed Jim out, and then Dinesh had the same thing happen. He, he was able to stay around uh, longer. Uh, he got... I think he got eight or 10 years in there, uh, maybe six years or so of publishing. But uh, the same basic situation happened. His investors said, well, we can we can make more money without him. Let's go ahead and sell. Uh, and uh, that- yeah, they, got, they got that guy from Marvel to come in and he brought in new money and that sort of took over from Dinesh and Jason. And I can't remember the guy's name. I think it's actually you. Uh, Cuneo, Cuneo, maybe Cuneo, or yeah, Cuneo. That's like it starts with a coup. Cuneo, yeah, <laughs> starts with a coup. But, that sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, but he he uh, he 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 uh, he's a real executive, and he was able to you know straighten it out. And I think for a little while they did some pretty good publishing, and then he's the one who was in charge. Like I think when they sold it to the Chinese. But like you know, I said, it's like uh, they had nothing to do with screwing me. So uh, yeah, good luck. Greg, do you have another question? Uh, well, one more question. If uh, if you've done all these interviews through all these years on Valiant, um, I figure you've answered the same question a lot. So I have to ask, what is something that you keep expecting someone like me to ask you, uh, but no one ever asks it? What is, what is it that no one is asking you that you wish they would? Um, wow. Uh that's that's a difficult one. I don't know. Um, <laughs> maybe 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 the plan, the thing is that I don't think much has been asked of me about where I was going from from where I left. You know what my plan was. Yeah, the post and, uh, the post Unity Valiant with Jim Shooter. Yes. Yeah, you know, what I would have done, and and what I would have done is I would have I would have been like Shy Bay, the advertising agency. We would be as big as we could be and still be good, and I would have. Very, very carefully uh, added titles and, and seldom added titles, and, and worked on making worked on making each one better. Because right around the time they got rid of me, that's when we really started making money. For the first time, I would have had money, and I would have been able to pay for you know you know whoever. But uh, um, so I would have done that. And my my biggest evil plan was the Shadow Man plan. Um, as you know, in the Unity book, he he finds out he's going to be he's going to die in 1999, and 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 uh, people say, well, what do you, what do you mean? You know, what if, what if a series is a big hit? And I say, series canceled due to death of the era. I said, that's it. I said, it's over. And I, and if we do that, if we do that, we take a book that's selling half a million or whatever it is, um, 
and, and we say series canceled due to death of, of hero. Who would ever dare look away? I mean, like mm-hmm. they, these guys are nuts. They'll do anything. And uh, uh, the other thing is, I said, you know something, guys? These old guys that work for me, they learned a lot. They were smart guys. And the young kids listened to them. So the young kids were getting smarter, too. And uh, and so, and then we had genius David Lampoon and a few other good things. But uh, uh, I, I said to the guys, I said, you know, all these other companies, when they get a hit, it's like they better hold on to it because they might never get another one. It, it's, just, it, it's like a miracle. They, they're like, oh, it's a hit. Uh, and they, they, they you know, guard it jealously. I said, we can do it again. We know what we're doing. We can do it again. We'll, okay, Shadow Man goes away. Selling big numbers. Who cares? We'll do something even better. You know, hey, well, something else, it'll be even better. And and that would, I think, be uh, a big thing in, in comics. I think that would, that would you know, really... Um, be meaningful, and and uh, that was my plan. And I had other plans, individual plans for the titles and so forth, and I couldn't recite them all now. But, but uh, <laughs> uh, of course, but, but I had I had lots lots of plans, lots of big plans. Of course, every Valiant fan in the world would want you to recite all those things. Please tell us every <laughs> plot point that you had uh, for the next year after Unity. <laughs> it's okay. Well, no, I, I have a lot of it written down, and maybe someday we'll be more okay. Well, Greg, is there anything else you want to say to Jim Shooter before we move on to the next caller? I, I have something I want to say to Greg. I want to thank you very much. You were, you're, you were great. And, you know, you, you, supported me you and the group gave me a set of comics you know you guys you guys are great and i appreciate it well we appreciate you creating the universe for our generation uh we are not old enough to be there in the 60s for the marvel we certainly don't have the early days for dc you created the universe that we grew up with that was our universe thank you oh my god that was beautiful greg thank you for being on the show thank you Thanks a lot. Okay. So now we're going to go to our next caller in just a minute here. But I just want to say how incredible that was because, like I said, Greg Holland did invest his energy, his time, his resources into maintaining valiant fandom especially the pre-unity comics which of course were the best and were the core of the entire thing it's what brought people to valiant everything after that was just kind of like superfluous like it wasn't even meaningful all the meaningfulness was based around the pre-unity comics yeah well i I think we built a good foundation that's true yes Um, i don't think they did much with it but but at (laughs) any rate yeah no i mean greg greg is he's a, a great guy and uh I was glad to talk to him. Okay, so we're going to bring Jim Hollister on. Jim Hollister is considered the greatest Defiant comic fan collector in comic collecting circles. He has the most amount of materials. He's been collecting consistently since Defiant Comics started, and after it folded, he still kept collecting, and he has some incredibly rare items. And really, he's just someone that deeply loves Defiant Comics, as I do, and we'll talk about that afterwards, but deeply loves Defiant and and loves everything that you brought to the table there. So we're going to bring him on. Jim Hollister, can you hear me? Yeah, I'm here. Jim, thank you so much for being on the show with Jim Shooter. Jim's Unites. 
Hi, Tom. How you doing? Great. Um, thank Jim, you so much Jim, for sorry. taking the time Jim, to talk to me. Yeah, I it's uh, it's a pleasure talking to you. Um, who are you still friends with from Defiant? Um, I don't know. Let's see. Uh, well, you know, I talked to JJ. I talked to her today. As a matter of fact, uh, um, uh, Debbie, uh, Winston, uh, Clark, uh, uh, pretty much everybody. I, you know, the, the I guess one person who probably doesn't like me is um, uh, what's her name? I can't remember. She was a uh, uh, Deborah Purcell. Yes, Deborah Purcell, because. Because uh, she she wasn't doing all that well, and and I wasn't. I, mean, I was like debating every day what to do about it, and uh, then she quit. And uh, why? Because she got a an offer from Big Comics, and um, and then and she wanted us to give her quote separation pay. Wait a minute, you're quitting, and you want us to give you <laughs> ten thousand. You want us to give you ten thousand dollars separation pay (laughs) because you're quitting to go to somebody who's going to pay you more money. Okay. I don't understand that. So I refused. I said, no. And, um, so she sued me for, uh, not for sexual harassment, for sex discrimination. And, uh, and I, you know, we we were paying her pretty well. And and before she started working for me, the only job she had was occasional waiting tables and, 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 and uh, fall raking leads for people. So, you know, uh, all right. So she, she sued us and I went to a a very good labor attorney and he said, settle with her. I said, what? No. You know, he said, he said, you walk into that courtroom, you're already guilty. He said, "He said you, you ought to be really glad she didn't just invent some sexual harassment uh, charge." He said, "He said, you know, it, it, it's going to be an uphill fight, you know, in in this current uh, political and you know uh, legal environment to to prevail here." I said, "I don't care. I'm fighting, you know, and and because uh, this is just insane." And um, Fortunately, it never got that far because the company went out of business and she can sue them all they want because she's still in the river group, not me. Um, but but uh, I just, uh, she's the only one I don't, I don't, I haven't had any talk, talk to her. Anymore. I mean, and she, in a way, she's a nice lady. I mean, she, she, she was, uh, you know, um, yeah, I mean, sure. she's good friends with Dave. <laughs> she's good, she's good friends, she's good friends with David Lapham, which speaks well of her. Okay. And, 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 you know, I mean, she, she has redeeming qualities, don't get me wrong, but if I mean, she just, this wasn't working out. And, uh, and meanwhile, then I run into Rubenstein, uh, what's his face? Richard Rubenstein, the guy, the big comics guy. And, uh, he actually tried to hire me once, and I said, no, no, thank you. And, and, and he, um, he did. He hired Deborah Purcell because he figured if she worked for me, she must be really good. <clears throat> and I ran into him once, and he said it was it just didn't work out. She, 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 he said, "I thought I thought she would, you know, be, you know, like like you, you know." And, and, and she said, "He said she she doesn't really know much about comics." I said, "No, because the only publishing job she had, as far as I know, was she was the fiction editor for Red Book for a while." And they stopped publishing fiction. I thought she was raking leaves, you know. <laughs> but, but, oh um, God. but, but, you know, I mean, like, uh, no, she did. She wasn't steeped in the comics. It, it didn't have, you know, uh, 
command of the form. Well, what going. made you feel like she would be a good editor then, just to cut in here? Well, I had tried getting people who had comic book experience and trying to teach them to be real editors because there weren't a lot of real editors in, in those days. I mean, once you get past Larry Hama, Louise Simons, and Carl Fox, and a few others, you know, they're just, and then they weren't available. Um, they, then it gets pretty, you get to people who have to be taught to be an editor. And um, so I thought I'd try it the other way. Let's find a real editor and teach them comics. Well, that was stupid. <laughs> so it, did, it just it was a bad idea. And, um, uh, you know, because uh, it, it, she, she kept saying, well, nah, I don't understand this. You know, I mean, she was super, the superb proofreader. She knew all about, you know, like uh, editorial procedure and stuff. But, but um, you know, she just didn't understand comics, comic stories, comics, you know, um, you know, the nature of the beast. And, and uh, it just didn't work out. So uh, I see. Jim Hollister, do you have another question? Yeah, did the 10 original Steve Ditko art cards, did they get inserted into the Dark Dominion packs? Yes, as far as I know. I, I never saw one, but um, yeah, I mean, as yeah, far yeah, as yeah. I know, I talked to, I knew people at the trading card company and they assured me it was all done according to oil. So, uh, I mean, could it be they were lying to me? It's possible. Uh, but, uh, um, and uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I can't prove it. Let's put it that way. But they said so. Well, Jim Hollister, as the preeminent Defiant Comics collector, have you ever seen one of those Steve Ditko original art cards? I have not seen one. I haven't seen I, one either in 28 yeah. years. So I've had a, I've heard a rumor of one, but I've never verified it personally. Interesting. Yeah, the river, the river group was not, um, you know. They, we didn't really end up having much to do with them. I mean, they, we, uh, we we weren't working collegially with them at all. You know, they they did their thing, we did our thing, and they certainly weren't uh, forthcoming about uh, all the details. So they um, they could be out there, or they could have been pocketed by a River Group employee that took all ten of them could home. Be. Could be. I don't know. I mean, I I was assured by people there. I thought I I, I think of as honest people. That it was all done according to the oil. Because this question has come up before. Uh, somebody asked me this a long time ago. You know, um, did, did I have copies of the Ditko cards, or, or did I have you know you know photocopies or whatever? I said no. They never bothered you know sharing that with me. You know, I Steve did them. I, I guess they came in and we sent them off, and and uh, nobody took a copy of them. And so as far as I know, and and. Uh, um, that was it. Oh, wow. Um, you gave the birth of Defiant Universe number one of 1,000 to your mother. Where is that book That's today? True. That's in my storage space with all the rest of my mother's things. Well, Jim, guess who has number two of 1,000? I bet you he does. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do own that in my collection. Oh, cool. Uh, well, yeah, I, I someday I'll have to go through all that stuff and, uh, and sort it out all out. And, uh, you know, I don't know. So number one but, is uh, still out there. It still exists. One of 1,000, the incredible oh, yeah, birth of Defiant Universe. Yeah. At the time, the most expensive comic ever created. 
That's yeah. Well, um, you mean uh, yes, because it was there was something. That's right. Okay, Jim Halster, do you have another question? Out of all the defiant characters that you created, do you have one that you consider the one that got away? Um. Well, I, I, I put it this way: I, I, I enjoyed, you know, all of them. But, but you know, it's like, well, who's your favorite child? But I was really looking forward to writing Glory in her own book. That's one of the things we wanted to do was, you know, make Plasm the, the launch pad and, and then have other books, you know, spin off from that. Not necessarily lose, take the characters out of Plasm, but have stories of them on their own. And um, it, was, it was just looking forward to doing Glory. I had so many good ideas for that. Uh, that you know, is- she was the, green, the grandma. Yes, of course. Yes, the older lady who received superpowers by being transported to Plasm, one of the seven survivors. Right. By the way, um, Mark Davis's favorite character is Glory. Oh, great. Mark Davis, yeah. who is part of the Defiant Comics fan group on Facebook. Cool. Yes. Yeah. Jim, do you, Hollister, do you have another question? Uh, last question. When you were 14 years old, Mort Weisinger sent you to New York for a week. He invited you to his home on Long Island and spent the day there. You said that was an adventure. Could you tell us about that day? Yeah, well, it's Mort Weisinger. Okay, that's Weisinger. And uh, it says the man who just butchered your name. <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, uh, no, that's it. And he was the, they didn't call him editor-in-chief, but he was vice president and, and kind of the head editor at DC. Um, and Mort uh, uh, was an extremely successful guy because I'm sure DC paid him very well. But he also, people don't know this, he, he wrote a book that was a perennial uh, money machine. It was called A Thousand and One Things You Can Get for Free. And they updated it every year. And, uh, and it just was a you know, perpetual money machine for him. The other thing is he used to write a lot of articles for magazines. And in those days, uh, if you wrote an article for a magazine, let's say it was published in Reader's Digest, other publications uh, would uh, try to get the, you know, the same article. They'd, they'd, they'd uh, get rights to publish it in Red Book or in, you know, whatever. Uh, and so, so he would write an article. He would do research on a subject, write an article, and, uh, and then maybe sell it you know, a number of times. And, um, like for instance, I mean, his wife had MS and, uh, he became probably the leading non physician authority in the world on MS and wrote articles about that, a series of articles. He, uh, for some reason decided to research the Miss America pageant, wrote a number of articles about that. Also wrote a book called the contest, a novel. Uh, based on, I think he wrote uh, another book called I Flew with Superman. Um, and so anyway, he made a lot of money, okay? And he had this, this gigantic mansion out in uh, Great Neck, Long Island. Mm-hmm. And um, and he, he uh, you know, I, I was in New York City. I had to bring my mother with me because I was only 14. And... Uh, um, but they were very nice to us. I mean, they, they took us out to dinner. They took us to a Broadway show. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. And I got to go back. He was a big shot. So I got to go backstage and meet all the actors. Uh, 
Jack Cassidy and uh, Bob Holiday, who played Superman, and uh, uh, let's see, what's her name? I don't know. The, the, the girl who used to play in that uh, Linda Lab. So, uh, and some others. Um, uh, and, and it was just great fun. I got to see how they made Superman fly. You won't believe this. This is 1966 technology, okay? There'd be a cable hidden behind something on the stage. At the time the Superman had to fly, he would somehow have to stand near where the cable was hiding. Um, a stage hand would be behind a couch or a pillar or something. And he would discreetly reach up under Superman's cape and hook on to the, to the harness that Superman had on under his costume. Okay. And then the stage hand would hide. And then when at the time when, when they, they cued the Superman to fly, they had this big tower backstage and it's this pulley system and a big fat guy who would jump off the tower with his foot in the stirrup holding this rope. And as he went down, <laughs> Superman went up. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> That's true. So they they showed me, you know, they didn't they didn't they did they didn't do it for me, but I mean they were yeah. all explained to me. Wow. It was just it was really cool. But that's nineteen sixty six technology. Uh, uh, you have a big fat guy jump off a tower and a full Superman. But anyway, uh, so I so all right, they were really nice to us. And then so when Mort said come out to his house on Saturday and, and spend the day. That seemed, that's, that's, I thought that's nice. Um, and I found out, and Harry, Harry Broaches, my friend, uh, had, was also invited. He was interviewing more one. He, he was also invited to his house and he had pretty much the same experience that I did. I mean, Mort was showing off as to what he was doing. He, he gives me the tour of the house and, uh, he, 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 uh, he, he showed me he had a number of rooms. I don't remember exactly. Uh, where he had a typewriter in the room and half a typed page in the typewriter. So he could take all of those rooms off as, as, as offices. And he had uh, color TVs, a bunch of them, seven of them or something like that, back when color TV was, you know, a, a big deal. And, um, and and he was kind of, I don't know, it's just kind of proving he was important that I wasn't. You know, I mean, he, he showed me... He showed me his maid's quarters, and he knew we were poor people. And he said, my maid lives better than you. I mean, that's the kind of things he would say. Oh, now, my God. He, t- he, he took me to his, his nice, beautiful, big library that he had. He pulled who's who off the shelf and looked himself up to show me that he was important than I was. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and I, I mean, all this stuff like that. He's like, you know, I mean, holy cow. You know, and, and then and he wanted me to go swimming or swimming pool. I had a guy declined. Um, but he just wanted to, you know, prove it. You know, swimming pool, I guess. Well, it's just kind of bizarre. And I'm like, hmm, you know, this guy, you know, he's got some kind of, you know, self-esteem issue here or something. Yeah, I definitely had an inferiority um, complex, it sounds like. I, 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 well, I don't know, but I mean, he kept having to show me all of his wealth and power. And I, okay, I believe you. <laughs> You're old, I'm a kid. You know, but, uh, you know, it just, that, that was that was that trip. And uh, my mother was with me. And um, and he got into, uh, he, he, we were sitting on his patio and, and uh, my mother's is a very religious lady. She's 94 now. She's not, you know, she's in the home, but but she's happy and, and nice. And, and to, she's still religious. She's just not very sharp these days. But 
she's very religious lady. And so he starts like attacking her religion because she kept referring to them buying my first story, which, you know, did a, uh, a great deal for our family. It was, it was, uh, you know, it, it, it saved the house, you know? Um, and uh, she keeps kept referring to it as her miracle. And so he starts arguing with her, you know, there is no God kind of thing. Oh my God. And, uh, and I, you know, and so at one point, now while he's arguing with my mother, he turns to me. He says, well, "What do you think?" I said, "I said, I said, I think she she believes that you know firmly, and I, I can't argue, you know." And uh, so he shut up. But uh, um, weird. But I mean, it was kind of a weird day. And then and so, so then I went home, and uh, Mort was a you know he was he was a tough guy to work for. He's always yelling at you. Always, you know, I mean, he told me, so I'm going to treat you just like I treat everybody else. I said, okay. I, I didn't know that meant he was going to call up and, and, and foul language. <laughs> swear yeah. at me yeah, and tell me, what a, tell me what a moron I was. Treat you like crap. He's telling, me, he's telling me what a moron I am right, all the time. You know, why can't you spell it? Look what it's supposed to be. And, you know, with and, and, well, a lot of F words and stuff in there. Um, and, uh, and yet... Like one time he calls me and he says, he says, uh, uh, you know, I've been talking to the Batman TV show people and, and, uh, uh they, they, they like you to write it. One of those two part episodes. He says, I arranged it. I said, I said, uh, oh, great. I did. I wrote the story and it was approved. Um, and they were going to give me format for script and stuff. And I was going to actually write the show, but, uh, they, uh, the series wasn't renewed. And so it didn't get done. Uh, but I thought, you know, why is he getting opportunities like this for the moron? You know? And then the other thing is he was always training me about the business, business of the business, you know, everything from, you know, uh, production to, to uh, financial. And I, I, I just couldn't figure out why I had to know. And, and his assistant, Nelson, to, told me, he said, he's training you to have a job like his. And I said, Oh, why? <laughs> Me, the moron. And so, uh, it, but apparently, you know, when I didn't work, end up that I ended up at DC, it, it, it ended up by Marvel. But all that stuff came in real handy. You know, being able to talk to the printer and use the right words. Right. Yeah, I'm sure the education that you received from Mort, like you said, did pay off. However, there was a price of abuse, you could say. <laughs> It's pretty yeah, wild. Yeah, well, the thing is, the thing is, at first when he was like yelling at me and stuff, you know, I'm like 14. You know, I, I, I was like, uh, it, it, you know, I was, it upset me, right? And I'm like, ah, oh, I guess I'm dumb, you know. And, and then I was up in the office, and uh, I'm not going to go through the whole story, but he, he deliberately set up his assistant Nelson for ridicule, and then ridiculed him, and, and it was like pulling the wings off a fly. He was, he just kept at him, you know. And, and and was just being mean to him, you know. And uh, Nelson said something wrong, and Mort just wouldn't let it go. And uh, uh, um, wrong about something editorial, P.S. But uh, uh, I thought, you know what? This guy's this way with everybody. And I'm not going to let him bother me anymore. So he'd still yell, and I just rolled off my back, you know. Ah, well, that's good. You know, yeah. But anyway. Jim Hollister, do you have anything else you'd like to say to Jim before we go? Actually, I think that we should take a second and talk about one of the world's biggest Defiant fans that I actually offered to be on the show. His name is David Pass, and unfortunately, 
he passed away last month from diabetes and he created the unofficial defiant comics archive which unfortunately is down right now because he was the only keeper of the keys you could say but he was a huge defiant fan i know jim hollister knows of him and i just want to say a shout out to david pass aka defiant one who passed away last Uh month he was going to be on the show but he's now graduated to the next dimension but jim hollister did is there anything else you want to say to jim shooter before we go just uh, really thanks a lot for taking the time to talking with us fans. It really means a lot to us, especially me. Um, and I will keep on hunting for the stuff that I don't have. Those Ditko art cards are out sure. there. Maybe. <laughs> well, it was nice. It was nice talking to you, Jim. And, 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 and thanks a lot. And, uh, uh, you know, I, if I ever come across any Ditko uh, stuff, I'll, I'll let you know. Okay, well, we're going to move on to the next caller. Thank you, Jim Hollister, for being on the show. Okay, so our next guest is a surprise guest. But before we talk about that person, I just want to talk about Defiant a little bit and just point out why I feel like Defiant Comics are so special. I have a huge attachment to Defiant Comics. I love Defiant Comics more than any other comics I've ever read in my life. I absolutely love them. And I had to sit and think about why Why is that? What, what, what makes Defiant Comics so special that you feel this attachment to these titles? And I went back and I looked at Warriors of Plasm. I looked at Dark Dominion and the other books. And what I realized, Jim, and this is so huge, What I realized is that with Warriors of Plasm, you were one of the first people ever to bring quantum physics into pop culture. You were talking about quantum physics and the quantum dimension before anyone. This is 1993. This is before Michio Kaku was huge. This is before the movie What the Bleep Do We Know came out. You were implanting these very, very high concepts into the developing minds of, of people around the world, especially in America, but definitely around the world. Well, yeah, I, I was always a science guy. I mean, I, 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 I thought I was going to grow up to be a science scientist, but the best laid plans, you know, uh, ended up doing comics. And I, but I always kept up with the science and tried to, you know, as much as I could. I used to subscribe to Nature magazine and read um, Stephen Jay Gould. I got to meet him once. Uh, Intel hired me to do speculative fiction based on their research. Uh, oh, man. Um, you know, I mean, I was, a, I was a science kid. Well, just something special that you realize how much quantum physics has become a part of pop culture. It's in all the modern movies. It's what a lot of people are talking about. Back then, this was very abstract. And to place those ideas, those very heady ideas, in the developing minds of humans is such a huge thing. It affected oh, thank you. It affected hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And you look at War Dancer. You know, he's talking about changing his vibration to interact with our dimension. You look at Dark Dominion. You look at Dark Dominion. And what Dark Dominion talks about, these creatures that are existing in another dimension just outside of where we are that feed on our energy and our emotions, Hindu people would tell you that that is real. They would tell you that Dark Dominion is real. Yes, I mean, I, 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 
you know, I, I was a voracious reader. I was a library rat, and I, uh, I, I tried to keep abreast of what was going on, and, and things that I kept finding out were so wonderful, I kept using them. <laughs> I, have a, I have a whole shelf full of physics books over there. <laughs> well, it just seems like Defiant Comics were intellectual, they were intelligent, but they were also like new age metaphysical comics in a way. And it's, it's a subject matter that had never been approached before and really hasn't been touched on since. Yeah. I, what I've tried to do is, you know, when I created these universes, I always, you know, I didn't broadcast it, but I always had in my head a, a sort of a, a theme, a foundation for it. And in Valiant, it was powers of the mind. Nobody's made of rocks. Nobody has wings. At least when I was there, and uh, you know, it, it was just unleashing powers that were in your mind that could make you stronger, that could make you able to fly, that could, you know, things like that. But it was all, you know, uh, front brain. It was very intelligent. Uh, and 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 the uh, the defiant. I, I was having so much fun with that. I wanted to do something different, but but defiant is 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 the influence of the id. It's 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 the dream world. It's it's uh, the the it's that um, the, 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 the 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 dimension that is one quantum step away from us. And it, and it's just so powerful to think because, like I said, this was not in pop culture. This was not in in the common mind then, but now yeah. it's talked about quite a bit in various circles. And someone that was with you during your time at Defiant. Is coming on as a special guest. Now, we're going to see if you can guess who this person is. This person absolutely loves you. Absolutely loved working with you, but has not spoken or seen you in 28 years. So let's see if you can guess. Mm. After Defiance, this person became an MMA photographer. And then on top of that, he was also the youngest person. To ever work with Defiance? Uh, I think I know who you mean. Uh, now I've got to find his name. Um, well, he's here. All right. Are, all you, right. Re- okay, right. Are you ready? Should I bring him up? Let's bring him in sure. on the show. His name is Zach Lynch. Zach, are you yep. here with us? I am absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it's a pleasure and an honor to be in your presence again. Zach, I remember you so well. I remember you. Uh, you played ball. You played basketball. I sure did. Right? Yes, I did. Yeah, he, he let him regale you with his. Uh, 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 who was the power forward? The next power forward you played against one time. Oh my goodness! You remember that, um, Grandma? Yeah, and you dunked on him, huh? Yeah, Anthony Johnson. Yeah. Or was it? Was that his name, Grandma? He used to dress up in the uh, grandma. Oh, I don't know, but but I think uh, it was it was uh, it was it was definitely a power forward in the mix, and Anthony Johnson might be right right name. I don't know, but I remember you dunked on him, and then he oh. he just like went after you the whole rest of the game. Uh, you, that I, was amazing. I, I cannot believe you remember that. I'm I'm flabbergasted at this point. Um, well, Zach, oh talk my- about your time at Defiant. How did that all start? I, I know your mom met Jim in an elevator. And that made, a, is, made a pitch for you. Let's talk about that. Um, I believe at the time she was working with, it might have been DK, Dorling Kindersley in the same building. Jim might even know who was working in the building better. Um, 
but she met him in an elevator and she knew my entire life revolved around comics. Um, the earliest photo I have of myself in with comics is 13 years old with the entire secret wars laid out on the rug with me pointing <laughs> for eight. Um, other work that a publishing company over on the West side, it was uh, right around uh, the real building. It was the, the fifties, I guess. Okay. Yeah. But, no, but and you, go on, please. I, I don't remember the name of the company. I'm trying to think of it, but it was a big uh, printing company. I think, I think they did textbooks maybe. Yep. Not sure, was, but anyway. So, yeah. so wow, Zach, I mean, uh, what do you have to say? It's been 28 years. Tell me a little bit about the, the best times that you had at Defiant Comics. I know you were the guy, you told me this story uh, in private, you were the guy that actually opened those original Plasm number zeros that came from the printer that had the one staple, and you, you told me you actually cut the tops off each 200 copies and passed them yep. around the office. It wasn't 200 copies I cut. I cut maybe a handful so that Jim and everyone else could have an adequate reading copy because I remember when I opened it, I handed it to some people and uh, the look on people's face was like, I can't read this. I, it won't even open. And I, I was no. like, oh, oh, grabbed an exacto, sliced a few open. And the remainder of them sat in the corner for a while. But yeah, yeah these, those, are the, these are the straight from the printer and they hadn't been trimmed. Yep, they were the first box of error copies, and um, the the guy's last name was Mason, by the way. Mason. Yes, okay. was it Anthony Mason or Daniel? That's exactly right. He was six foot nine with a dress, and it was in the middle of a game. And they stopped the game, and were like, "What are you doing here?" And I said, playing ball. And they were like, oh, yeah. And then someone passed me the ball, and I ran in and dunked on him when he was talking. <laughs> so, so, Zach, tell me some of your memories from Defiant. What was that like for you being a kid, being an intern, being really – you said there was two interns, but you really did all the work. Uh, tell me what was that like for you as a kid being around Jim Shooter, David Latham, Je you know, Jeff Jones when he was just really first starting his career – all this amazing energy. What was that like? Uh, I have to say it was, a, first of all, a turning point in my life because uh, comics were all I had. And somewhere around 1988, they kind of dropped off and fell to nothing for some reason at Marvel. And uh, I For some reason. Off yeah, for some strange reason. Because <laughs> I left there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ding, ding, I'm ding. Not, <laughs> I'm not, not even... I, I, I could tell you the exact point without even reference. I don't know the stats, but I know what happened when, according to reading the books. And somewhere around issue, I don't know if it made it through 222 with the Mutant Massacre or somewhere in there. I was crying because Colossus could have been killed. And, and then I just let my subscriptions go. And I was wandering. I was in and out of college. I didn't know what to do. And my mom found this internship. And I just, my, my world opened up. And I said, you're kidding. I, I can go be a part of comics with Jim. Do you know who he is? My mom's like, I think so. You know, and I'm like, oh, please. And I got there. And it was for five bucks and two Subway tokens a day, which was a buck 25 a token. And myself and Matt Senreich the creator of Robot Chicken, and another kid, Micah, who sat around with his feet up. 
um, we did the stuff inside and I was a little bigger and stronger than most of the other kids. So I could carry boxes. I could travel places. I could do stuff. And the entire time was there. I was, I had two things. I was working my ass off so I could stay. And two, I was sucking up every shred of looking over someone's shoulder, listening to what they were saying, hearing the comments Jim would make, sneaking in to look into a meeting and then writing down what they said. Um, it was just, you know, comics were literally defined who I am. And the comics I read were <laughs> looked over by Jim. And in them were pure, clear-cut morals and uh it, it was it was defining of characters and me i defined myself after a hybrid of conan and uh spider-man and captain America. <laughs> i'm not kidding i am that's not bad citizen, i'm a citizen journalist crime writer. um i shoot mixed martial arts i used to do mixed martial arts pretty good now i'm still going as a photographer and all of it is Still in the vein of trying to be a good person and make a better world. So all of that came from comics. And when I got to work inside the comic industry with the man, in my point of view, who shaped it all, because I wasn't alive in the 60s to know, that's when I was alive. And when I read was 1978 to about 1988. And that's where my years were. Uh, yes, you were, you literally, I am a product of you, Jim, literally. <laughs> <laughs> hey, for so, better or for worse, huh? <laughs> well, and, and so when I got to there and see David, my friend, Gre Greg Boone, rest in peace. I miss Greg. Greg, well, Greg Boone, rest in peace. You're right. You know, yeah. and, and Lena and I were really good friends and we hung out all the time. And it's like, I made lifelong friends there. And at the same time, I understood the fine art of comics which is such a wide broad stroke yet it's a precision thing that you almost have to follow a precise pattern if you want to do it right time and time and time again and tell stories and it's one thing i learned and i've never put out a comic but i have put out lots of magazines lots of photos trading card sets i've worked for a ton of companies and I hate to say it, sorry to defray from Defiant, but I did it all the Marvel way. <laughs> well, Everything. Zach, I did want to ask, well, oh, Zach, I did want to ask you though. You did say that when Defiant, you told me privately that when Defiant closed, it really felt like, and I feel the same way. It really felt like the true classic era of comics ended at that point, and then uh, something else happened afterwards. That was the end of it, and I stepped into the next phase of it. Like, I, for $5 a day, I needed to work and have a life. I was 20 years old at that point, and one of your defectors from your company, and you know who I'm talking about, Deborah Purcell, brought me yeah. and Quinta down to techno. And I couldn't say no because it was money. I had none. Yeah. And, and as soon as we got there, it went from traditional colors to computer coloring everything went from there's not a letterist there's not a cut there was no anchors there was nobody all the people i saw in the office joe james and jj and george and everyone doing all the interior work the old craftsman way were gone 
And I just yeah. like, whoa. And all of a sudden, they're looking at me because I know how to use computer and color. So I colored the first three books of Leonard Nimoy's Primordials. <laughs> and that's cool. because I overheard Jim T tell someone how to color. Oh and, my God. and what I did was I picked up all of the old classic books and I kind of tried to refresh what he was talking about. And my favorite line ever is Jim said, what's this? And he's like, what do you mean? He said, you can hide a battleship with the color gray. Interesting. <laughs> and, and you were talking about the depth and the foreground and the background. And I just was like, huh. I got into color theory after that. And I mean, there's so many things I could say that I picked up from you, Jim. And all I can say is I'm anytime you ever need another intern and uh, (laughs) uh, it was the time of my life, the best memories of my life. And I've done a lot of other very interesting and storied things to keep on the tradition of it. But that was the first best thing I ever had. Well, thank you for be, being Thanks, on the Zach. show, Zach. It's, it's been great for you to be here. Before we move on to the next caller, is there anything you want to say to Jim before we go? I know you just said that beautiful statement, but this is your last opportunity. Is there anything you'd like to say to Jim on the way out? Well, Jim, I actually would like to talk to you again sometime or at least communicate, as I said. Just thank you for everything, yeah. ever. Well, thank you, too. And I, uh, I'll get Jake to send the information to you. All right. Well, let's get you guys in touch. You guys can can reminisce about that beautiful time at Defiant, really my favorite comic book company, the most powerful, some of the most powerful comics ever made. Plaza, Dark Dominion, you can't even touch those. So, Go a lot, Thanks. I always thought you were, well, certainly by far the most athletic and and maybe the best and brightest. Well, that means more than you imagine i'll try not to cry on air i gotta go <laughs> all right zach well hey thank you for contributing we're gonna move on to the next call i'm definitely gonna uh send the information over to jim so you will have that and jim I'll, I'll give you his information you guys can right. reconnect our next guest is someone that again loves jim shooter look when people create things that have a profound impact on your life and they turn out to be really cool people like it it really it really affects you as a human being because those dark dominion stories changed my life you know they really got me to see this outside dimension and wonder is there something else feeding off of me and on top of that it helped me personally to get over fear and the concept of fear and how michael alexander really looked fear in the face and just really didn't let it affect him and by doing so it gave him a version of superpowers by simply letting go of fear of course steve ditko's energy is in that character it is incredible to think that stan lee and steve ditko created spider-man and jim shooter and steve ditko created dark dominion so it's a very powerful thing to think about it's it's amazing yeah, Steve, uh, I, I was made the order for Steve. I had a long talk with him about things he wanted to do and would like to do. And uh, that that was the, the, a lot of that was the inspiration for, for Dark Dominion. And Steve, you know, 
unfortunately, he, he, he didn't like the idea of the platonic nature of having a dimension that's just out of our sight. It's one one quantum step away. Um, he No, seriously. He oh, I know. No, I know. I remember the story. Well, the funny thing is, the reason I'm laughing is because he's there now. He graduated. Yeah. He's, he's in that <laughs> other dimension. Now, looking yeah. at us, talking about this, you know, he's feeling us talk about this from wherever he is now. It's really powerful to think about. So the next, uh, the next guest we're going to have on it's going to focus on Jim's third company, Broadway Comics. Now, unfortunately, as great as Broadway was, it didn't last very long because the company was sold and then the people that bought the company were not interested in making comics at all and they instantly shut down the company. Could you remind people what happened there a little bit, Jim? Well, I mean, after the crime, one of the bidders to... to finance defined was Broadway Video. It was uh, right. run by Broadway Video Entertainment, which was run by a guy named Eric Ellenbogen, and uh, the principal owner of the whole Broadway group, including Saturday Night Live and Broadway Video and Broadway Video Entertainment and other things, was Lauren Michaels. And uh, <clears throat> I'd actually done a business deal with Lauren Michaels. I'd, I'd, uh, we had done a Spider-Man uh, team-up book Spider-Man meets the not ready for primetime players. So we've actually interacted a little bit. Really? So anyway, yeah. So I think Warren was behind it. And, and Eric Ellen Boger was the president of the entertainment division. And he had actually tried to give us, put in a bid to finance Defiant. And that, that didn't work out. So uh, we ended up with the river. But um, when uh, we were going out of business because uh, of, you know, Marvel and the fall of the market and all that stuff like that. Um, uh, he called me up. I, I, uh, I, I couldn't talk to him while I was still under contract. I spent the last month of my contract sitting alone in that office. I'd come in at nine every day. I'd sit there every day until five, and then I, I, I'd go home. And when the last day came, I, I left my badge and my pen on the on the desk and went home because the River Group was taking you know right. because the company closed the river group uh, controlled the assets so at any rate um uh then i met with eric and uh in the meantime winston folks who didn't have a contract um he was my uh publisher uh, financial wizard and uh, he was uh, originally, he worked at the Time Incorporated. He was a senior financial officer there. So, you know, wise and older. And <clears throat> so when, when it looked like we were going to close, I mean, when we were going to close, uh, Winston was great. He, he helped uh, make sure that uh, all of the employees got paid every everything they wrote. All of the freelancers got paid everything that they road before we, you know, closed and ran out of money. Um, and all the small suppliers were paid. Uh, we couldn't pay Cabacore and they didn't, they, they, whether they said to me, it's all right. You brought us millions of dollars. Yes. Many, I remember many, this one. Yeah. And, and, and you'll be in the business again. You'll bring us more. So this is, I, I think I skipped them for $186,000, but, but, uh, they said cost of doing business done. Don't give it a thought. And he actually gave me a little present, actually. But uh, at any rate, so um, Winston had gotten together the people 
kind of the key people, um, Janet Jackson, uh, Joe James, Pauline Weiss, Clark Smith, um, Debbie Fix, uh, who else? I don't know. But uh, a, a small group. And he had uh, gone to Eric Ellenberg, knowing that Eric was interested in doing comics, and uh, said, well, we have all these people available. And so Eric said, well, I'll hire them temporarily because I have a, a project. I need, I need someone to work on. They can work on this. The project was a, a, a development for, for Harley Davidson, trying to make an entertainment property built around Harley Davidson. So uh, he got them a safe landing. And he was over there, too. And uh, so I was alone in the office for a month. Finally, my contract's over. And uh, Eric uh, called me and said, uh, uh, and this is a quote, he said, this team needs a leader. And I said, you know, if you want me, I need a gig, you know. So they hired me. And uh, uh, we worked at first on the Harley thing. I thought we did a really good development. But, but um uh, Harley people, I guess they they, they couldn't make a, a licensing deal, so it just didn't happen. Um, so Eric says to me, "Let's start a comic book company." And I said, "Eric, the, the market is in chaos. The, you know, it's 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 yeah, it was terrible crashed. at the time. It's yeah. over." Yeah, and he said, um, "He said, look, uh, that that's all right." He said, "What we really want is for you guys to create properties, and then we'll we have a movie company, we have television." We'll, you know, get stuff on the air. That's what we need. We need properties. Eric used to always say, I never met a copyright I didn't like. And <laughs> so, so, so anyway, I said, he said, well, of course, we'll publish comics and, you know, I hope not to lose money. But, but the, the, the main goal is to, you know, you and you, the people you will get for us will create things and then, then we'll, we'll, you know, use, use us. I said, all right. So we started Broadway Comics, and um, basically much of the same crew as I had at uh, Defiant, and um, a few of the people like Barbara Morser, who was our financial person. She had no trouble getting on the job, so and then they didn't need a financial person at Broadway Video, so that was it was that that wasn't a problem. Everybody landed safely. Um, Brady Darvin ended up working at Diamond. Um, uh-huh. Stuff like that. Anyway, um, so we started uh, doing it. And we decided to do it in a different way. We would write as a team, just like they do on television. Television, you, you generally write in a group. You don't you don't just sit at home alone and, and write uh, TV scripts. So we had me, Janet Jackson, uh, uh, Pauline Weiss, and Joe James. And I was sort of the head writer and you know conducting the orchestra there. Pauline can type faster than you can talk. So she was the scribe. And she, but believe me, she, she, your fingers flying on that keyboard, she got every word that we said. You know, and we also had a backup tape recorder, just in case. Uh, when, I, when we were talking, if something needed to be designed or sketched, Joe James was right there with a sketchbook. He contributed to the story as well, the writing as well. And JJ had a couple of specialties. She was good with costumes. She was, if if we had a location, she'd do a floor plan. So you know, if I had a guy dive out the window, we made sure there was a window there. Um, uh, so so and and you know, and we're acting stuff out and you know, having a great old time. Um, and then 
we're, we're going along, and, and we had a couple interesting successes. We, we got Gatal on TV in the World Wrestling uh, shows. Wait, uh, what? You got had, Fatal on TV? Yeah. So she uh, basically... Uh, I, I don't know if I've ever Eric, heard about this before. Well, Fatal was a, a very popular book. I mean, it wasn't... Yeah, it was great. We weren't setting the world on fire. We weren't setting the world on fire. Right? No, it's a great book. And, um, yeah, and, 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 and so Eric Ellenbogen um, and his licensing lady, and I think her last name was Brodsky, I can't remember his first name. But um, uh, somehow then they talked to the world wrestling people and and, and they, they said, you know, the World Wrestling uh, Federation wants to work with us. And I was like, oh, here we go again. Um, but no, they, they didn't want to just license stuff to us. They wanted to do creative collaboration. Okay. So, um, so anyway, I knew, I already knew the Vince McMahon and, and the, the WWF people and, and, uh, and Linda. And, um, um, you know, so we, we started uh, cooking up ideas. Uh, we, uh, were asked to write them a, uh, uh, a wrestling scenario, uh, a storyline for the WWF for a season. And I did that. And, um, uh, there's a story about that. I'll tell you in a minute. But uh, we, the other thing is, they they uh, wanted to uh, have us uh, um, somehow use one of our characters, and so uh, we, uh, uh, I don't know how we came up with the idea that they should use Fatal, um, and and uh, we actually hired an actress, uh, Tracy Adele, who was a former Playboy playmate. No way to play. To play Fatal, and she came to New York, and we got to know her, and, and she actually appeared on several broadcasts. As oh Patel. my God, I had no idea. Somebody's got to find that footage. Yeah. WWF archivist, yeah. WWE, or whoever's listening, find that footage for me. Yeah, and and, um, and you know, I, I got to know the fans pretty well. I I, I, I went up there. They, I saw them filming things up up to Connecticut with their their place was and I saw them film some stuff they they invited me to go to a show in um, Pittsburgh uh, they had a, at the Civic Arena they had a show and I had you know um, good seats at the show and uh, you know and, and before the show uh, Vince showed me how the ring worked it's big spring underneath it and, you know lifted the apron and he explained things and um you know, it was a whole, it was a terrific education. So, anyway, like I said, they did ask me to write a storyline. All right. So, I wrote a storyline. And um, especially because it was so tall, I, I actually had uh, women in the ring, right? Now, they had done female wrestlers before, but it was always, uh, you know, very separate from the men and so forth. And, and the idea that they would be in the ring or that, or that they would, be three females that wouldn't wouldn't just stand there and you know, be beautiful and bring their hands. Vince um, said no. He said no. We're not doing that. We'll never have women in the ring. We're not going to do it. The, the storyline I wrote was called. Um, oh my God! It was about a hostile takeover. I can't remember what I called it. It was about the the, the rich guy, the million dollar man, De Blasio. De yes. Yes. Uh, he was going to do a hostile takeover with the WWF, you know, and change everything and, and, and for a while. And there was going to be uh, women in the ring. And Fatal, of course, had the secret uh, superpower to 
borrow people's uh, uh, strengths and abilities. She was going to be featured in it and, uh, and so forth. I mean, Vince, you know, he loved the story. So that's a great story. No, you know, because we're not doing it. We're not having, you know, women in the ring. I said, okay, I'll, I'll try something else. And meanwhile, they were using Big Collis as one of their like um, people who doesn't wrestle, but just would was be there at the ring. You know, they, like they did with sure. Cindy Lauper. Sure, sure, just like a character on the side, periphery. A character on the side who was who was you know this this you know femme fatale. So anyway, um, I presented my story to Vince at a group. The meeting with him and a whole big ton of his executives. Like I said, his, 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 he, he didn't want to do it. And, uh, and so the very next week, all of his top executives were hired away by the rival WWE. Is that the Turner one? Uh, no, that was WCW. WCW. Whatever, they were hired away by, by them. It's practically his whole executive staff hired away. Right? Oh my God! And guess what? And guess if, if if that's WCW, if that's what it is, guess what? Immediately, they had women in the ring, and they did a, a, a whole program called New World Order, where somebody else takes over. They did my story. Actually, that was the WWE. It wasn't the rival to the WWF. It's just what they morphed into because they got sued by the World well, Wildlife Fund. Well, all I know is that is that a rival organization hired the executives, and that rival organization did my story. Oh and my I, God! I, Maybe it's the ECW. The, you know, it's it's a lot a little rusty with my wrestling knowledge. I, if there's I, any I, too. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know who it was. It's, I thought it was the Turner organization, but any anyway. But they so, used your idea. Uh, yeah, they they took it pretty much word for word, and because uh, I presented it at that meeting, and then they all go to the. A new place, and I guess somebody said, "We have any ideas?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I got and, one uh, right here. <laughs> and, and they had they had women in the ring and everything. But uh, so then Vince, uh, we were going to do. Uh, I did another story, and we were starting to work on that, and it was going to. Uh, uh, we were going to publish it, and then they were going to uh, use parts of it uh, on the air, and that was he liked that one. And uh, uh, let's see. But then that's when we were sold to the Golden Books Family Entertainment. Uh, Lauren Michaels decided to sell his entertainment division because I guess he was getting a real good offer. I think they came to him, I believe. And so, um, and Eric Ellenberg was sold with us. You know, I mean, the, the guy who ran the, uh, the unit was sold with us. Right. But uh, so they sold us, a, a, a music uh, publisher, um, a uh, whole big ton of movies, all those claymation Christmas movies. I think I the Lone Ranger was movies. in there, right? Lone Ranger. Yes, and then and the two crown jewels was the Lone Ranger and Lassie. Yes, and 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 so all we were all sold as a package for ninety five million dollars to Golden Books, and, and Golden Books decided that they didn't want to be in the comic book business, and that was it. Boink. So, oh my God! Yeah. Yeah, and that anyway, was disappointing. If I remember the story, sto- there. yeah, and if I remember the story, you met the new owner. You went to introduce yourself in a nice way. You're like, "Hey, I'm Jim Shooter," and they're like, oh, "We don't like comic books. You're out of here." Something like that. I mean, I said to him, <laughs> I, "I said, I said, Mr. Snyder, I'm Jim Shooter. I run the comics because they had a meet and greet for us, right? You know? So I walked over and I said, uh, I, I run the comics, and he didn't even say hello. He just said, he said, we don't want to be in that business. We're going to shut you down.'" 
That was his <laughs> opening line. Yeah, I remember you told me. Not that. even hello. Not even hello. Come on. <laughs> you know, but but anyway, so when they, they did, they shut us down. And um, it, it, the one good thing about it is that is that they 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 had they did their best as far as severance outplacement and all that. And so they nice. helped other people get jobs and uh, and uh, they. Uh, they tried to help me, but they they were just like outplacement place. Used to dealing with normal people, and they're saying we well, should write a resume. I said, "Lady, if I have to write a resume, my career." So <laughs> you know, it's like it's like would Robin Williams write a resume? Right. If he did, it would be funny, right? You know, I mean, it wouldn't be the standard, you know, resume. And, and uh, um, so I, I didn't actually. Well, know, now that we've got the. Now we've got the Broadway story down just for those that didn't know or maybe needed a refresher. We're going to bring Scott Braden in the, uh, and Scott is a contributor to the recent Overstreet's guide to lost universes, which featured Broadway and defiant and maybe even valiant, I believe, but definitely Broadway and defiant. So we're going to bring Scott in because he loves all of your creations including the Broadway comics. And he's incredibly knowledgeable about Broadway specifically. So we're going to bring him in right now to ask a few questions. Scott Braden, are you here? I am here, but actually to let you know, volume two, we'll be talking about Broadway. It's volume one actually talked about uh, Defiant and Valiant. Okay. And talking about Broadway, one of the interesting things about it is the fact that you actually were going to do creator-owned projects there as well, Drastic Action Comics. Um, yes. Tell me about that. Well, I mean, I, I, wherever I was, I always wanted to do creator-owned stuff. I mean, with Valiant, we just never got to that point. Uh, with Broadway, we were much better financed, and, and and I had a very free hand. I was also going to publish Mr. A, by the way, which Sitco was going to own. Mr. Ray? Wow. Mr. A. Um, he had he was very, very tight with Mr. A. He, 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 when I first brought it up to him, he, he said, no, nobody touches Mr. A. And I told him, um, look, Steve, we all we want is one-time publishing arts. That's it. You know, and then if, if, if it goes well and you like it, maybe we'll do reprints or whatever. And we'll make a new deal for that. I said, Here, here's what I offer you. You go find a lawyer, somebody you trust. And um, I either will draw up the contract and they can vet it or he can draw it up. I said, I'll pay your lawyer. You pick whoever you want. I'll pay for it. And and uh, when you're satisfied and he's satisfied that this is bulletproof, that no one's stealing his trade, that we're getting one publishing use out of it, and then we'll see what happens. I said, then, then we'll, we'll do it. And he said, no, we're not ready to touch Mr. A. Then he brings me a complete Mr. A story. And I says, well, maybe you should read this. And I read it. It was great. And, and I said, you know, are, are you willing to do this? And he said, oh, yes, I'll do it. You know, he said, I trust you. And I said, great. So, um, so we started on it, but that was right about the time we were sold the Golden Books. That uh, oh. just killed everything. Yeah. Oh, but anyway, we you know, we we were going to do creator own stuff. And why not? And we're a publishing company. You know, we, you know, we 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 had our own little universe, and the company owned that, and that's fine. You know, we we it, it was worth for hire, but it was damn good work for hire. I learned a lot about uh, all the ways to make it better when I was at, at Marvel, and I'm kind of inventing some of these things. And, and, and by that point I had a very good idea of what to do and how to do it. It sounds like it was called drastic action comics. You were, is that correct? You were going to call it that? 
But that was Alan Weiss's um, uh, a title for a book he wanted to do, Traffic uh, Action Comics. Okay, okay. All right. And then and then Alan had some properties that, that uh, we were thinking of, of, of doing, and I don't know whether they would go out under Drastic Action or, or that was something he had other plans for. But, but he had uh, Wonder War was one of them. Uh, Wonder War was... Um, uh, the, the first guy in Pearl Harbor who was injured in World War II is a cartoonist, and he, he goes into a coma, and this is his dream. And uh, of course, it's all it's it, it's World War II fought in cartoon life. It's it's the, the CBs. The CBs are actually bees. You know, the Ethel Mermaid is the you know in it. Uh, uh, Crab Calloway. You know, it, it was funny stuff. It was great. Well, maybe Alan. Uh, maybe Alan will publish that. Someday. Let's I see. hope so. He's been talking about it for years. Yeah, the other another project I'm interested in too is Tale of the Flea, which was drawn by J.G. Jones. Say it again. The Tale title. of the Flea, Tale of the Flea that was oh. drawn by J.G. Jones. Yes. Yeah. J.G. Jones. You showed promotional stuff of that. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. What a what a what a great guy. What a great artist. Yes, we do love J.G. Jones. We had lots of lots of irons in the fire there, and the thing is, the funny thing is, that, is that you know, okay, starting out, it's it stuff, especially in a very very depressed market. Um, but we had actually gotten to the point where we were pretty much turned the corner. We we were um, uh, uh, we weren't strong enough to stand alone. In other words, if we had to pay for our own space and our own lawyers and our own accountants and all that stuff, uh, we did we weren't making that much money yet. But we were actually um, uh, direct cost profitable. We actually were, were um, you know, we turned the corner. And, and uh, that's where they cut us off. <laughs> you know, Fatal was catching on. Starseed was catching on. And, and we're starting to get, you know, positive, uh, um, uh, well, well, well above break, break even positive cash flow. You know? Nice. And, it just didn't, it did, you know, it just wasn't, wasn't to be. And also, I mean, I, I, somebody said, well, why didn't you buy Broadway comics out of uh, Golden Books? And the answer is Marvel was going bankrupt, and that was a real bad time to try to raise money. Yes. Because Marvel's going bankrupt, the market was depressed, um, and it just it just wasn't the, the good climate to go try to raise money and start a comic book company, I'll tell you that. I almost went. To, I almost went to Marvel. Wow, that's true. You yeah. did do Avengers. Yeah, I was, oh. huh? You were supposed Pardon to do me? an Avengers project there, weren't you? No, that's later. But but uh, what happened was when Marvel was on the edge of bankruptcy, I got a call from their CEO, Bill Bevins, CEO of the holding company that owned Marvel. Um, and uh, I'd met him before. We talked once before. And uh, um, his first, uh, he's after hello, his first words to me is, can you fix this? And I said, yes. And Broadway, I knew it was going to end. So that seemed fine. And he said, come up to my office. So get in a cab, go up just off of Madison Avenue, I think in the 60s. And um, that was where uh, uh, his office was. And so I went there and we sat there and, and, and fairly short order we made a deal and uh he said he said it's going to take me like two weeks to get this done and i said all right you know that's fine i'm 
you know, I'll wait. And within a week, Marvel went bankrupt. So it just didn't happen. Wow, that's an incredible story. So there is an alternate universe out there where you saved Marvel Comics and perhaps <laughs> made them way better than they are now, which they're owned by Disney. So it's it's definitely changed quite a bit. They've actually absorbed a few properties, Aliens, uh, you know, all the Fox properties, Star Wars. There's just so much that's under the Marvel umbrella now. But Scott, do you have another question you'd like to ask Jim? <laughs> I actually, I have one last question. Looking at, you know, Marvel and Valiant and Defiant, you told, and, and please tell me if I'm wrong, but you told stories in a more comic book Marvel way with, with Broadway, like you said, it's more of a studio. Which one did you prefer? Um, I, you know, I, I worked by myself my, uh, most of my life. I, I, I'm, I'm fine with that. That was, that was fun. But uh, I have to say this, that working in a, in a studio type environment was good because you never get stuck. Somebody always has an idea, you know, and, and I had the support there of an artist and a designer and, and someone. Napoleon, but besides being a scratch, he contributed quite a bit. Um, and we had so with the four of us and then we invented the fifth chair. As somebody uh, once said to me, boy, I wish I could, you know, I could be there and listen to everything. And I said, well, you can participate, you know? And we, we literally got a fifth chair. And I don't, cannot remember who it was, but they came in and spent a couple of days writing with us, you know? And, uh, and, and that they were And finally, that one of the local news stations here in New York, uh, heard about that. And this reporter was big into comics, um, one of the anchors. He asked if he could be in the fifth chair, and he was. He was good. He was really terrific, and they did a, a, wow. a, a, a thing on the news about us. The best thing was in San Diego, we um, uh, we we decided let's do a panel, but not a panel. Let's make it the fifth chair, except there'll be fifty fifth chairs. And uh, so we we did it really right. You had to sign up to come to the uh, to the Broadway booth. Sign up. You got paid a dollar and signed to work for hire, um, and uh, and then uh, we had this room. And my my convention uh, guy, the, the guy who did all the conventions and set everything up, he had arranged so that he had cameras looking over the shoulders of JJ and uh, uh, Joe James, so we could take people people could see them as they designed things. He had. Uh, um, Pauline's computer rigged up so that it, as she typed it, it, it appeared on a big uh, screen. Okay, and so you have the drawings appearing on screens, and then her typing appearing as well. And I, I was walking around acting stuff out and asking people in the audience to contribute and you know so raise your hand if you have an idea, the kind of thing. Get got some of them up on stage. Um, uh, we were acting out scenes and stuff, and I'm saying, say, "Hold that pose, Joe." You know, and Joe would sketch him, and you know, it's like, you know, we, we had a blast. And guess what? Oh. You know, I, I, everybody, you know, I've been the pariah of comics so long; I'm, I'm used to it. But, but just just because I'm me, the convention scheduled us up against the preview of the new Star Wars movie. Oh. Okay? and and. And and guess what? We Star had Wars. our all fifty people showed up, and we turned 
dozen scores away yes. because we only yes, had to all right. So, so take that convention. <laughs> and and, 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 we, and we, we all had a blast and we were working on a live issue of, of Starseed and, and uh, of course it never got published because, you know, we got sold. But, but, um, uh, we, we, and the, the, the but the fifth chair people contributed and, and had some great thoughts and great ideas and and uh, uh, and mostly we had a blast. But I was so impressed when I found out we were up against the Star Wars preview. I thought that's it. Nobody's coming, and uh, everybody came. And like I said, you know, many more besides. Well, I think that people recognize your incredible work. They want to yeah. tell you. They want to be around you. They want to contribute to what you're doing but uh scott do you, do you have anything else you'd like to say to jim before we I, go I actually i just want to say jim i have been a fan of yours for many many years i'm not going to tell you how far back i've gone but it, it rhymes with region and uh <laughs> i uh i do want to say i do want to say it has been an honor and a privilege to talk to you sir i met you in pittsburgh back in 1993 when you uh, had a signing for defiant and I, ever since then, you've been nothing but a gentleman. You are, I, I want you to come back into comics. We all do. Yes. Uh, because, and I know you've never really left, but at the same token, you add so much to it and, and we need you. So thank you for doing something like this. Just to let us know, let us people know that you still have an interest in this because you are an amazing man, sir. Thanks a lot, Scott. That, that's very nice. All right, Scott. Well, we'll be talking later, of course. And uh, Jim, I just have a few more questions before you. Thank you, Scott, for being on the show. I do have a few more questions for uh, for you. So when we talked on the first uh, meeting that we had in the previous episode, we talked about these counterfeit valiants. It got some press. Uh, Some of the comic book websites were writing articles about our interview because there is this potential of counterfeit valiant comics pre unity valiance out there i know your memory is a little fuzzy about it and you've pointed me towards fred pierce because you delegated yes. that that dealing with that to him but is there any details is there anything that you can recollect about these counterfeit valiants other than the fact that they exist well all i know is that uh, there was uh, someone in the midwest and i, I you think i remember the state i'm not i, I don't know i was indiana or illinois something like that. What, you know, when the Valiant books, when Wizard was, you know, every month tracking them, kind of soaring in value. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, um, they, when they were going, going crazy, someone started, you know, somehow reproducing them and counterfeit versions of them. And these are and, full uh, comics. They're full comics and they were looked professionally printed. Yes. And, and, and so, uh, we got into this somehow and, and Fred was at one time worked in, uh, well, uh, I can't remember what they call it, but the Israeli secret service. So Fred was, you know, very good at, uh, the Mossad, you know, well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and he was very good at, uh, you know, kind of, uh, he understood the, the operations and everything like that. So, so he, he said he'd take care of it. And he um, he got in touch with uh, I guess the state police and some people, some local authorities out there, and uh, they arranged this thing. And uh, uh, sure enough, uh, some guy shows up, you know, with a, uh, uh, a SUV full or a trunk a trunk full of uh, these 
these, uh, you know, uh, phony comics. And, um, and as soon as the, you know, money changed hands, the police swooped in and they got him. And I don't know how many of these things he had sold or got mixed into, you know, the comic book shops, what the comic book shops had. I don't know. But, um, Fred might. It, it just, it seems like a person would need to have access to a professional printing machine in order to counterfeit it in such a way that a collector wouldn't notice. Yeah. Well, I think that, I think that, like I said, Fred, Fred would know more details than I do, but they did catch the guy Okay, and it was stopped, but he had been doing it for a while by the time they caught him. And I know you sent me, um, a photo of, of what might be, um, a, uh, bogus book you know next to the real one i have to say the one purple i think yes one's purple the the, the color isn't right on one of them right and i don't i don't believe that's a real copy uh but I couldn't swear. I don't. I want you know. My testimony wouldn't hold up in court. Well, let me just back you up there. I I don't think so. So that picture I sent you, I actually pulled off of Greg Holland's Valiant Fan site. Someone recently posted this as they found this. The Solar Number One comic, traditionally as printed from the actual printer, had a purple and blue hue, and some copies are missing the purple and it's just blue you're feeling those blue copies may be the counterfeit ones yeah i think i think that might be true because i've never in all the years i you know i of course we saw a lot of them in the office and i've been for years now i've been signing those books i never saw any that look like that um oh my you're god you're saying the blue ones yeah Wow, that's that's shocking because, uh, you know, there's so many, there's over actually 20,000 pre-Unity Valiants that have been sent to CGC for grading. So it would be devastating if if a lot of those books were actually counterfeit. Well, I don't know. They might be. I mean, uh, um, it must be a matter of public record, too. I think you could probably research, you know, that, that arrest and the conviction. I've personally been digging, but without uh, details, it's hard. I've really been looking, but nothing's come up yet. And Fred Pierce, unfortunately, is unavailable. I've been trying to reach out to him. He hasn't gotten back to me yet. So it's still a mystery until we figure well, it I, out. Yeah, I run into Fred every once in a while. If I do, I'll, I'll bring it up. Oh, thank I, you. I appreciate that. And uh, an, an, Just a couple more questions. One I have to ask you as a fan, do you still handwrite all your scripts? Are you are you accustomed to a typewriter now or just a keyboard? Well, I, I, I did for 30-some years, and uh, and then uh, Chuck Rosansky got uh, sick of me because he, he, he wanted to email me and stuff, and I, I didn't have a computer, and I didn't have time to learn one anyway. So one day I come home, and the, and the doorman says, so these are for you. It's all these big boxes inside and order anything with this and with it was a note that said interest on the loan because i'd once loaned him a little bit of money business for business okay and uh it said the note said interest on the loan because he said <laughs> that back long ago but uh and i took it upstairs and it's a computer a keyboard a printer uh, everything you know the whole setup well, now it's sitting in my living room, and I have to learn how to use it. So I did, and eventually I got to the point where I could two-finger type. And, um, you know, 
not real fast, but fast enough. I mean, as, as fast as I can think. Let's put it that way. <laughs> oh, good. And 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 you know, and so I, yeah, now I have a, a nice laptop, and I I you know sit here on the couch usually because more comfortable than sitting at so, the desk. So you're used to it now. You can sit at a laptop. You can type. No more handwritten mm-hmm. scripts. It's all typed. It may not be traditionally typed. At least two fingers are moving. Yeah, and everything's <laughs> formatted correctly and spelled correctly and all that. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I learned how and um, uh, became pretty good at, uh, you know, getting it to look the way I want. That's and, really- uh, yeah, that's kind of cool. Well, I, you know, it's, what's interesting, too, you, you brought up Larry Hama earlier. Do you realize that he is still writing G.I. Joe comics to this day? Yeah, I just saw him last weekend. We were at the same convention. <laughs> what a good guy. Oh, he's great. great I, I just can't believe that, you know, almost 40 years later, he's still writing G.I. Joe comics. Yeah, and loving it because you know, I mean, it's, it's it's like a labor of love for him. Oh yeah, because he, he he's 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 good at it, and and he cares about it. See, people don't realize that Larry is not only he was an ex-military explosive ordnance expert. He's also a military historian. You know, if you have a question about the you know the Battle of Marathon, he'll tell you exactly where you know how it went, where who was winning it. And, I mean, you know, he knows everything, and it's. It's um, it, it reminds me of that Patton movie where Patton was standing now five thousand years ago we were on this hill you know I mean it's, <laughs> it's, that, it's, it's that much you know it's really that that far he really knows his stuff and he loves it and he, he gets to you know play with it and 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 and, and not only is he still doing it he's still doing it right. Yes, and he's the right guy for the job. And when we talked privately after our last interview, you mentioned that you had a Timothy Leary story. Can you share that with us? Yeah. Um, so I, I, in my, I think last year at Marvel, um, this uh, guy shows up and uh, he says his name is Michael Hollingshead. Look him up. Okay. Anyway, Michael Hollingshead. Um, he actually lived in my neighborhood up there for half a block away. But uh, anyway, um, he, he was a scientist and a teacher. And uh, apparently, there's this little elite club of scientists that you know would get together. Well, apparently, for some reason, a bunch of them were out in L.A. And uh, I guess they perhaps had a drink or two. Um, and they they were goof around, and, and and they said they ought to start a university. And then they, they decided that they would it would be called the university of Hollywood and the textbooks will all be comics. And, you know, and they're, they're just, you know, having fun and calling that, but I'm going to make that happen. So, so he came to Marvel comics and he said, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, this is what we have in mind. And I said, but I'm the science guy. <laughs> you came to the right guy, you know? And, and so, uh, we, uh, we talked about it and, the list of, of people that he had that would help, that would be involved, was incredible. It was like a who's who of scientists. And the one that stuck to my mind is uh, uh, Stephen Jay Gould. Oh, wow. Was one of them. And there were other, I think, uh, uh, I can't remember. But, but there, were other, there were other scientists, names you'd recognize. And I have it all in someplace. Uh, but, but anyway, so we started. We made a, a deal and we started. And one of the first things that so the first guy, the idea was going to be that we would take their theories, what some theory that they wanted us to, to do, and then sort of 
explain it in comics, sort of with with a, a kind of a story running through it, and and uh, uh, you know with that with visual verbal presentation of comics, try to make it understandable for people. And um, so the first guy was Stephen J. Cole, and so I flew up to Boston. Uh, we made an arrangement. I flew up to Boston, and I spent a whole day with Stephen J. Cole. And boy, that's one of the highlight days of my life. Oh, wow. I mean, we were talking, and he's a great guy. He's tremendous. He was a tremendous writer. He was compactly and precisely. He was great. And I was a subscriber to Nature. I read its column every month. Um, so anyway, but I mean, I hung out with him. I was just hanging out, man. I, he takes me, me into his workspace, and and we're uh, he's showing me fossils from the Burgess Shale. He said, this one's half a billion years old. Now, this one over here. And I'm like, wow. And he was really impressed that I'd heard of the Burgess Shale and I knew what it was. You know? <laughs> he, and, and so it sort of gave him confidence. So he was, yeah. he was like, uh, yeah, he was, he was uh, real uh, happy with the, with the, the, what we were doing and everything. And I, I thought it was going to be called the Titan Science Series. The Titan Science Series. Interesting. And Marvel was going to publish it. And uh, I, I thought it was going to be the greatest thing. And I was just loving it. But uh, that was also near enough to the time. Two things happened. Uh, Michael Hollings head stories vary, but the story I was told by his close relatives at the time was they had gone to uh, to Peru on an expedition to you know for some archaeological expedition, and I was was killed by by criminals, by, you know robbers, you know. Okay. That's what I was told. Now since then they've people have amended the story that now he got sick in Venezuela or something. I, you know I, whatever. He died, wow. or you know, uh, he just you know he died or vanished. I don't know. Wow. But so without him, there's no glue holding this together. One, two, I was leaving, and no one else at Marvel was capable or had the interest. There was nobody with a big science background at Marvel. I mean, I, I you know, I did. I had a pretty good science background. In fact, as I mentioned before, Intel hired me to write speculative fiction based on their um, on their research. Right. What they told me is they say, pick, pick a couple things for research and we'll give you all the information and write a story 40 years out with a, a fiction on based on our research, but think 40 years ahead. So I did. And they were very happy with it. Um, uh, so anyway, I, I, you know, I... I I would have really enjoyed that, but it didn't uh, didn't come to me. You know, it's my my story, my story of my life. All these dear misses. <laughs> well, Tim Leary was somehow a part of that, though, right? Was he one of the scientists? Well, was... Hollings said Hollings said no, but Hollings said was one of Leary's associates way oh, back during okay. the the, the uh, what was it the, the, the electric something Kool Aid tour though the bus yes yes uh, the, bus the further bus America. yes. Yes, and uh, and and he was uh, the, the the definition of who was a married prankster and who wasn't is vague, and so in, in some circles, Hollingshead was a married prankster, but he wasn't on the bus, and then some uh, some say, well, then he doesn't count. That's doesn't where count. I know but the name was, from the pranksters. Yeah, he was big buddies. Yeah, he was a big buddy of of, of uh, Larry's and the and the rest of the pranksters, and. Uh, like I said, he was a teacher, he was a researcher, he was a scientist, 
and uh, um, uh, and I didn't know who he was. I'd never heard the name Michael Hollingshead before when he came in, but but uh, eventually I looked him up and holy cow, wow. <laughs> this guy's one of the Larry guys, you know. No, now that and, makes uh, that makes sense because I know that name. I was like, where do I know that name? I actually live in the area in Oregon. Uh, where the pranksters are from. They're from the Eugene, Oregon area. I live in Portland and I used to live in Eugene. I've, I've hung out with those guys. I've hung out with Kent Kesey and the pranksters. It's a really interesting yeah. correlation here. Well, I mean, like I say, like the definition of the pranksters is loose. Uh, because, <laughs> you know, some guys wanted to cross country in the bus and some guys didn't. But, right. But then some consider them the ones that didn't still were pranksters and some said, no, it's only these count. <laughs> Whatever. Okay. Who cares? He, he he knew he knew uh, Timothy Leary very well, and, and they were friends, and and he was part of that group. Well, I got to tell you this, Joe. I wasn't expecting to be talking with you about the Merry Pranksters today. <laughs> that's why i told you i said we, i got a story to tell you. <laughs> that's amazing you know they follow me around i've been uh i've been engrossed in that world the uh, grateful dead counterculture and that whole psychedelic world for a very long time it's very it's like my my second home to be honest but jim yeah. you know we've had an incredible episode We've talked to some people that actually deeply love you and your work from various sectors, including myself. And I just want to say that uh, in 2022, you have to understand something. Stan Lee has passed away. Jack Kirby has passed away. All of these people, Steve Ditko has passed away. All these people have graduated to the other dimension. They're making comics in a higher dimension somewhere. You're here carrying that lineage carrying that torch you're the one that is here now representing this incredible art form and its most root state at its very roots it's it's you now some people would say you are the living stanley but it's more than that because you contributed in a way even more so currently it seems like in 2022 you are the king of comics you are the person that's holding that torch yeah, well, I don't. I mean, yeah, yes. There weren't very many of us left over from from back in the '60s or before. I think John Romita Senior is the eldest of us, right? Um, yeah, and and uh, you know, and there's Roy and there's Neil. Uh, Roy and Neil are each ten or eleven years older than me. Because wow. um, you know, see, I'm, I'm the last dinosaur because I I uh, I started young. You started you know, earlier. I started with I started with all the other dinosaurs were older than me when I started. Right, and uh, you know, there's there's a few a few other people from from way back when, and uh, hard pressed to think of the names now. <laughs> but you're here as a but, representative. I mean, it seems like Marvel yeah. Comics should be hiring you to be their ambassador. Like you should be out there representing all the great works that you've done. Perhaps yeah. that will happen well, but, at some point. But, but I don't know. Mar- Marvel is is very strange. I, I, I don't know what's going on there. I really look at it and I think, somebody wants this <laughs> this way? You know, why, why are you thinking this? You know, I mean, I, I look and I just think you forgot what business you're in. You're entertainers. Entertain right. somebody. Yes, and they you lost know, but, the art of storytelling, which hopefully that book that you're uh, working on manifest because the story though the art is beautiful the storytelling was lost the deep storytelling techniques that were developed by master craftsmen over time it seems have been lost in a lot of ways 
Yeah, artists are drawing pages to sell at conventions, not to tell a story. Exactly. And, uh, and, and uh, there are a few who really know what they're doing. I think that uh, that saga book, uh, Fiona Staples, she's very, she's excellent. Yeah. Uh, a few other people are really pretty good. But, but uh, too many of the guys are, are, you know, seeing pages sell for big money. And so they're designing the page to be marketable, not to tell the story. And uh, my, my comment to them is, Whose pages are selling for the most money? Frank Miller just years ago sold a, a cover uh, for $463,000. Right. Okay. How did we, why? Because he did flashy art? No, because he told the story. Yes, and that you know, resonated and it, with people. It affected people, and that, yeah. that created the attachment. Yeah, it, it basically, yes. It, it'll make it mean something. Make it mean something, and then, and then it'll be valuable. That's, that's how it works, guys, and, and if you're if you're, if you're making pages to sell a convention, you're not doing your jobs. Yes, exactly. That's, that's a bad thing. And I, I've always wondered, Jim, why was it that comic book art was not returned uh, originally? And why was there an expectation of comic book artists to have their artwork returned? Because it seems like from a business standpoint, you know, they got paid for their work, you know, a page rate. And so the company that paid that page rate would keep the page. How did it become a paradigm that uh, the pages would get returned to the artist? Well, nobody cared about artwork early on. You have to remember that comics were like a third-class citizen of the arts. Comics, comic books started out as reprints of newspaper strips were insanely popular. And, and syndicated cartoonists made a lot of money and were very successful, right? So a lot of people wanted to be syndicated cartoonists. And so the streets of New York, where all the syndicates were, were awash with guys carrying portfolios. And it's like Hollywood now is full of wannabe actors, you know? Right. And, uh, and who are pumping gas and, and waiting tables. But uh, but these guys would come to New York, schlep their portfolio, and go all these syndicates, try to sell their strip, just like Siegel and Schuster did, okay? And, and fail. Now they had to make a living. So uh, when a couple things coincided, uh, comics quickly used up every single newspaper strip that had ever been done. <laughs> and, and so the publishers wanted material. They didn't want to pay a lot because they were used to just paying uh, some reprint fee. So they didn't want to pay a lot. So, but there was all these unemployed cartoonists who needed work. So they were able to get them to do at a very cheap rate, material for, for comic books. And, and that, they did pretty good, so they kept doing it. But like I said, it was this, it was really third-class citizen. That's why so many guys changed their names. Stan was born Stanley, Stanley Lieber. Yeah, or Lieber, yes. But he was he, Lieber. He was saving his, his the name Lieber for when he wrote the great American novel <laughs> or did a syndicated strip. Or, or something. I mean, that, that was the name he was going to use then. So the, he was hiding in the comic books as Stan Lee. And, and, and back in those days, I mean, it was, it was all considered junk. Nobody, nobody thought anything of it. And, and, uh, and no one wanted the artwork back. The artwork uh, was, was either thrown away or, or just left to rot somewhere. And <clears throat> very few of those pages survived from back in the beginning days. This, this continued all the way up to the 60s late 60s, because when I was working at D.C., I came into the office one time, and uh, Mort Weisinger's just gotten back from the 
printer the original art for a couple of Legion stories. Two issues, as a matter of fact. And he says, hey, you wrote these. You want this? You know? I said, oh, uh, sure. And I said, yeah. He said, yeah, I'll take them. You wrote them. You, might, you know, like them. So I, I, I said, oh, wow. So I went home and I called Kurt Swan. I said, Kurt, I got, I got these books, but they, you know, they're yours. You know, what am I doing with them? And he said, oh, just, you know, he said, look, if I had that stuff, I'd throw it away. He said, I don't have room to put all this oh stuff. Oh, my God. You know? He said, Jim, if you want to keep it, he said, or throw it away. He said, but I, I, would, I, I would just get rid of it. You know? And uh, no one was buying original art. No one cared about it. It didn't seem to have any value. It's already been printed. It's been used. Throw it away. And, uh, and so Larry Hammond tells the story. I, I originally thought it was him, but he said, no, it was a friend of a cartoonist who went up to King Features. This is in fairly recent history. This is, uh, let's say, last 70s. He uh, went up to King Features, and it was, it was raining. And when he gets there, they're throwing Hal Foster Prince Valiant originals on the floor to soak up the water. Think about it. <laughs> that hurts my, and, my brain just thinking about that. Yeah, and, and so, and like I said, nobody cared about this stuff. I think the watershed was... Um, here's Jack Kirby and, and Stan and Steve and, 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 and other people, and they, they, they built this wonderful thing, Marvel Comics. And Martin Goodman sold it to Perfect Chemical in 1968 for $10 million, which was a lot of money in 1968. Right. And, um, and the little light bulb goes on with Stan and Jack and Steve, and they're like, hey, we built this. Martin gets $10 million. We get our next job you know, our next freelance. And at least Stan had a nice, cushy, you know, uh, staff paycheck. He worked, he worked for it, but you know I mean, but, uh, you know, like guys like Jack and, and, and Steve were like, Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> you know? So, so anyway, even so still, nobody really cared much about art and the art would come back. And I don't know what other companies, I know DC used to just destroy it. Right. Because Len and Marv told the story when the, one of their first jobs when they were like interns at DC was to destroy or throw away the originals. And so they started taking them home. I mean, if you ever went to Marv's house, every inch of his wall was covered, was covered with original art. You know, they, they considered it salvage. You know, they were saving. Yes, I think I've heard uh, this Len, from Marv before. And Len, Len's house, too, was just, just lined with original art, which all got burned when his house burned down. But, uh, but, but at any rate, I mean, uh, when the, when the management found out that they were looting the, the, the garbage dumpsters, the, uh, they, they were ordered, no, you have to, here's a paper cutter, cut them up and then throw them away. So they would carefully cut them in the panel cutters, take them out of the trash and take them home. And, uh, so you know, DC was destroying it. Marvel, to its credit, right from the get-go, from the stand, you know, like 61, for some reason, they would come back to Saul and he would put them in a warehouse and uh, uh, the storage space section. And uh, he had stacks of them around his office waiting for the next trip down to the storage space. Um, but uh, again, still, nobody quite cared about it. And, and uh, even though the the, the sale of Marvel sort of raised people's uh, awareness. Hey, we're doing valuable stuff here. Um, still, nobody quite cared. Not even Kirby. 
And, 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 and so fans that come in on tours and stuff and they just give books away. Oh, you want a Kirby book kid here? You know? Oh my God. And, and this happened a lot. And Kirby was of course very popular. So a lot of his stuff got given away, but they just gave it away. There was nothing. They, 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 they access something, a little souvenir for the kid, you know? And, uh, uh, so right about 1973 is when people started to say, Hey, wait a minute, you know, what, what, maybe, Hey, we want that. You know, the artists started wanting their art back. Roy at Marvel and then whoever was at DC about the same time managed somehow to talk the, the, the execs into allowing them to return current artwork. Okay, DC had their little plan of how it should be done. Marvel had their plan. Marvel's plan, because it was created by Roy, a writer, who, he, he had it so that the writers got two pages out of every book, you know, every, out of every 17 pages or whatever. Uh, DC gave it all back to the artists. Um, uh, so that, that goes along that way for a while. And also the pencilers got first pick. And the anchors just got what was left, and, and the writer got the last two pages. Um, so that goes like that for a while, and, and the anchors grumbled about it because the art, the pencilers always picked all the best pages, and they just got what was left. Um, and then nobody was really happy with it. At least the artwork was going back to people. And then I came in, and uh, I said, this isn't right. And I, got, I listened to all the complaints from the anchors and everybody, and then even the pencilers had complaints. And so I changed the system. I made it so that uh, no writers, writers didn't get pages anymore. And uh, that um, uh, the, uh, uh, therefore the pencil and the ink reached out one more page. And uh, that was a little better. It was the first step. And then uh, um, I set it up so that if the penciler and the inker made a deal between themselves. Like I'll get one book and you get two and then I'll get another one. You know, we would honor that deal. I mean, so kept track of anybody who made a deal with their, with their anchor, you know, and then we will honor their deal. Um, but, uh, otherwise we just, we just, uh, we just shouldn't. I also, uh, Joe Sinnott had never gotten a splash page in his entire career. And, uh, I said, I said, but why? Cause the pencil always got first pick. So I, I, I set up a system where, no, we're going to randomize it. We'll just, you know, um, uh, get uh, playing cards, number them 1 to 64, you know, and then you take, if it's a 22-page book, you take the 1 through 22, you shuffle, and you deal. This is an anchor that's Spencer. And, and then whatever cards, if it says pages 5, you know, 6, and 12, you know, that's what you get. Right, and so it was randomized so that anchors would occasionally get splash pages. Right, it was really funny. After a long time, Joe still hadn't gotten a splash page, <sighs> and so this is this is evil. I know, but I went and stacked the deck. I asked, I told the art return person, "Go take the coffee break." You know, and I stacked <laughs> the deck. nice. And 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 then the, she, she comes back, and I say, "Don't shuffle them. I already shuffled. Just deal." And so she did, and so Joe got the splash page, and then I felt terrible about it. So I called Joe, I called it um, uh, John B. Summer, who had penciled the book, and I, I came clean. I said, this is what I did. I said, uh, John, I will pay you for that splash page, whatever you think it's worth, you know? And he said, oh, I don't 
I don't mind if Joe gets it. That's fine. He said, that's, yeah, that's, he can have lots of splash pages. I don't care. And I said, well, I'll only do it once. And I said, I, I felt bad about it, but I also felt so bad for Joe. And he said, oh, Joe's a great guy. You know, yeah, make sure he gets splash pages. So, so anyway, uh, uh, after that, I didn't mess with it anymore. But, but, um, but that worked pretty well while I was there. And everybody seemed to be happy, especially because they could make their own deal if they wanted. You know, I'll get the front half, you get the back half, and we'll alternate. Or, or you get a whole book, I get a whole book. You know, whatever they wanted. So, so that's and, how uh, it all started. It was not in the 70s, and then people didn't even care. And now it's a, a, a yeah. definite expectation for all of the artists. Oh, yeah. if, if they don't use just straight computers, which so many do, they do their comic book art exclusively on computer. I do know a couple artists locally uh, Brian Chirilla, uh, lives actually in my neighborhood, believe it or not. He's a comic book artist and, uh, he is exclusive to computers. He doesn't pencil anything with paper or ink. There are, there are some guys, not very many who do the walk on tablet thing and, um, draw on the computer, but uh, excuse me. Um, uh, but most guys still, uh, they do at least the pencil and ink on paper because they want that page to sell. Ah, yes. Yes. Then it's scanned into the computer. Everything else is done. Lettering, coloring, all all production is done on the uh, computer. But they have their originals, which they can sell. And they could do them all on the computer, but they, they like having that physical page to sell. Yeah, that is great income. I mean, you know, those pages go for hundreds of dollars right now. It's pretty amazing. But Jim, thank you so much for sharing this history with us. I know that we could probably go another four hours. I could just keep thinking of questions, but of course that's an incentive to have you back. We're definitely going to have you back. So, uh, thank you again for being on. It's been an incredible interview. Thank you for being so generous with all of the fans that were on Greg Holland, Jim Hollister, Zach Lynch, and Scott Braden. Thank you all for participating and being able to talk to Jim and Jim, is there anything Those guys else? Are great. Oh, they're amazing. Is there anything so, else you'd like to say to everyone before we go? Um, I just, uh, what a pleasure it is and, and an honor to be involved in this, this whole industry. And just, uh, you know, it was a great ride and it still is. Yeah. And it feels good to be loved, right? Well, it feels good to do what I do. It's fun. Yeah. Okay, Jim. Well, please hold through the outro music and everyone what an episode incredible we just crossed the three hour mark incredible episode we can just keep going but we'll have jim back don't worry and we will see you next week midnight on earth